This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Over the weekend, many prominent fascists gathered at the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tournament, including former president-turned-insurrectionist and wannabe dictator Donald Trump, white supremacist propagandist Tucker Carlson, and proud Christian nationalist and QAnon conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, there were multiple photos of the throuple that went viral, and Marjorie Greene deliberately shared this particular image featuring her with Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump, adding, Man, what a time to be alive. You and yours versus me and mine. Oh, we talking teams? Oh, we talking teams? Oh, you switching sides? <laughs> Want to come with me? Hashtag MAGA. And just look at the way that she's looking at Trump's face, like looking into his eyes as he's pointing aggressively towards her, gushing with happiness because she's just in his presence. And I want to juxtapose like that, the way she's looking at him with this picture of Donald Trump with no makeup, because that's what she's staring into. And I just love that that brings a smile to her face. Just love it. Now the crowd chanted, let's go, Brandon, because of course they did. And um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she was interviewed by Real America's Voice. I didn't know that this was a real news network. I thought that that was just like a segment on OAN or Newsmax. But apparently Real America News Network, uh, which sounds kind of racist. But either way, you know, that network decided to interview Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they asked her whether or not she would want to be Donald Trump's vice presidential candidate. And she said she would consider it at first. But by the end of the interview, as you're going to see, she talked herself into it. So what do you do with the fact that um, as people are starting to look forward to 2024, I think there's consensus, uh, mostly among our audience anyway, and with most of the people that I've spoken with here, that Donald Trump needs to be the nominee and anybody else is sort of a distraction at this point. At least that's what I'm hearing from people. Um, but that I hear the words MTG mentioned a lot. Hello. As somebody who'd be a great running mate for Donald Trump. I just wonder what, what you do with that. Well, I, you know what? I think if he asked me, I would definitely give that some strong consideration. Okay. I love President Trump. I, I never, I never hide that fact. I think he's wonderful. I have a great relationship with him. I talk to him frequently. I'm, gr I'm so thankful for him and his family, as we all are. And I defend him all the time. I, I swear I would, I would fight for that man because he fought for us, and that's the kind of president we need back. And if, if. If he were to ask me, of course, I, I would be honored. It's really interesting to me that she thinks that she's qualified to be the vice president. I mean, that woman would be one heart attack away from the White House, from the presidency itself. That should horrify everyone because I believe that as bad as Donald Trump is, as big of a threat to democracy as he is, Marjorie Taylor Greene is actually worse. And I'll explain why throughout the course of this video. But would Donald Trump actually choose her? And the answer, I think, is yes. Because consider why he possibly chose Mike Pence back in 2016. One criticism of Donald Trump, even though he was beloved by the GOP base, is that he wasn't sufficiently religious enough. So in order to kind of unite the Republican Party, uh, unite 
possibly the libertarian and the you know evangelical factions he chose somebody who was a fundamentalist christian in mike pence but the problem with mike pence and why trump wouldn't choose him again is because mike pence wouldn't go along with trump's lies about the 2020 election marjorie taylor green however she fits both of those uh those needs for donald trump she checks all the boxes not only is she an insurrectionist but she's also sufficiently religious in fact she self-identifies as a christian nationalist proudly so in fact i believe she's selling shirts that say proud christian nationalist and this story is from last week but let's go over it again as newsweek explains marjorie taylor green a republican representative from georgia has defended her endorsement of christian nationalism after the term she is a nazi trended on twitter green was accused on monday of being a nazi by twitter users commenting on her defense of christian nationalism while speaking on saturday at the turning point usa student action summit in tampa florida the georgia republican later shared a clip of her speech alongside the comment nationalist isn't a bad word because it means you care about your country, sure. Quote, I am being attacked by the godless left because I said I am a proud Christian nationalist, Green said in a statement sent to Newsweek, which was also shared on Twitter. These evil people are calling me a Nazi because I proudly love my country and my God. The left has shown us exactly who they are. They hate America, they hate God, and they hate us. That's actually true. Many of those who commented on the she is a Nazi trending topic said that they knew the phrase was referring to Green before even looking at the related tweets. Me too, actually. Christian nationalism has been heavily associated with far-right extremism in the United States in recent years, including white supremacy. Now, you can argue that she's either being dumb or disingenuous, but it's a distinction without a difference. It really doesn't matter. The reason why people are calling her a Nazi after she's saying that she's a proud Christian nationalist is because Christian nationalism means that you support a country that excludes people who aren't Christian. That includes Jewish people. That includes non-Christians. It means you subjugate marginalized minorities, deviants such as the LGBTQ plus community, and it's inherently a fascistic ideology. But she's saying, I'm a proud Christian nationalist, but simultaneously she's mad that people are calling her a Nazi in response. I mean, she's probably just stupid, but Andrew Torba, CEO of right-wing social media website Gab, is also a self-proclaimed Christian nationalist, and he admits that it's an inherently fascistic ideology saying that Jewish people and non-Christians cannot be part of the conservative movement, saying, quote, we are going to build a coalition of Christian nationalists, of Christians, of Christian candidates at the state, local, and federal levels, and we're going to take this country back for the glory of God. So that's why people were calling you a Nazi, Marjorie Taylor Greene, in response to you saying that you're a proud Christian nationalist. Because it doesn't just mean that you're a proud Christian. It means that you want a state to the exclusion of everyone who is not Christian, including Jewish people, non-religious people, including people who you describe as sexual deviants like the LGBTQ plus community. That's why they're calling you a fascist, because in order to achieve what you want, a Christian nationalist state, you have to purge people who aren't Christian from the state. It's an inherently fascistic ideology that you're proud to be part of. But Teehee, I'm just a proud Christian. Sure. Sure you are. So when you're a Christian nationalist, you don't believe in pluralism. You don't believe in democracy, because what is the point of democracy if God has given you a divine mandate to rule by his authority? So what's the point of voting when you already know what God wants you to do? No need to elect representatives to do what the people want. You know what God wants because he told you, so you cut out the middleman and you just stop electing people and you just rule based on what the Bible tells you to do or what God tells you to do.
So that's why Christian nationalism is incredibly horrifying. So as dumb as Marjorie Taylor Greene may be, even if she's currently a national laughingstock, don't think that she couldn't actually become the president or the vice president because that's kind of where we're at. Let me remind you that she's at this live Saudi-backed golf tournament with Tucker Carlson, who mainstreamed the white replacement theory. And his show is the most popular cable news show on television. So even if it's easy to dismiss these people because they are clowns, think of what happened when everyone dismissed Donald Trump in 2016. So yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene is an imbecile. She's a clown, but she's a clown who could actually get real power in this country. And she's a sitting member of Congress, so she already controls the levers of power to an extent. But what she wants is more power. The fact that she's vocalizing, you know, greater political amb ambitions, that should horrify everyone because people like that who are proudly and openly fascists, you don't want them anywhere near power. But the fact that they want power so desperately tells you that they want to remake this country in their way. And it doesn't include you. Their vision excludes everyone but people like them. And that should horrify everyone as clownish as these buffoons may be. Bill Maher was asked about Andrew Yang's forward party in a recent overtime segment, and like all of us, he doesn't actually believe that this will be a successful endeavor. However, he does think that this party could have a particular effect, specifically on the Democratic Party, which he believes would be good. What is he talking about here? Well, uh, let's watch what he has to say in the following clip, and when we come back, I will explain to you why he's completely delusional. Joe Biden's not a radical. I mean, he's not, he's just not. And he was put forward as a Democratic nominee precisely because- but he bends into the radicals. He, he has bent, yes. And I think that's part, of, that's part of what's been a problem from his president is that he's raised these expectations. You could have it like a sensible middle party. And it would then, what, what would happen is it would force the Democrats to go back to being the sensible middle party. And they would, because they would see that's where- you know, Biden, I mean, Biden reminds me of some grandfather. And when, when AOC and the woke people come into his office and pretty, he just he just goes along. He doesn't really understand it. It's like, Grandpa, can we have money to go play Fortnite? And, uh, <laughs> and, and he's like, for, uh, he just, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that one. Yes, Bill Maher is out of touch, but we're not just witnessing somebody who is out of touch. This is now bordering on delusional territory. And I'm, I'm serious about that because to say that Biden caters to the whims of the left and bends to their needs, it's so wrong, it's so demonstrably untrue that it might actually be borderline delusional because that's just not happening. Who is it that wrote the Manchin-Schumer legislation? It's in the name. It's not the Sanders-Schumer legislation. It's not even the Warren-Schumer legislation. It is the Manchin-Schumer legislation. Joe Biden is quite literally letting a modern-day coal baron whose family owns Enersystems, a coal company, dictate the terms of climate policy. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema sabotaged Joe Biden's entire agenda, and they were so desperate to get something accomplished with regard to climate change just so they can tell the base that they're doing something that they told Joe Manchin just to give us anything and we'll support it. And that's what happened. Joe Manchin is proposing climate change legislation that has a lot of good provisions, but it also has a lot of giveaways to the fossil fuel industry, a lot of pork to his donors in the oil and gas industry. And we don't even know if that will go through because Kirsten Sinema might tank it because there are provisions within that legislation that increases taxes on corporations and the wealthy. So when we're in this situation where 
The Democratic Party is caving to everything that Joe Manchin wants, and he refuses to even call him out? You still have the audacity to say that Biden is caving to the left? How? I mean, that's the question that we're all asking, right, when we watch him say, say that stuff. How? How is he caving to the left? And we don't really know because Bill Maher never gives us a specific example. But Sam Stein alluded to Build Back Better being evidence that Biden is caving to the left, which is absurd because Build Back Better was Biden's agenda. It was incrementalist reforms that the progressive movement, people like Bernie Sanders, supported because it was all that we could get with a right wing president like Joe Biden. But we didn't even get that because Biden caved to Manchin and cinema. He didn't fight them hard enough. Now, Build Back Better, it improves, it includes good things, right? Expanding Medicare to include dental, hearing, vision, universal pre-K. But the left, they wanted to go further. They wanted healthcare to be free at the point of service. They wanted Medicare for all. They wanted a lot more than what Biden was offering. But that was all that they could get. So they supported it. But even Biden's moderate agenda was too far for individuals like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. But yet you claim that it's the left who Biden is uh, bending to. The left always gets what they want. Well, if that were true, wouldn't it be the case that the left was enthusiastic about Biden? Wouldn't it be the case that young people, disproportionately left-leaning individuals, were enthusiastic about Joe Biden? I don't think anyone is satisfied with Joe Biden. 75% of Democratic Party voters want someone else to run in 2024. So I, I just, I don't know what Bill Maher is talking about. To say that he's talking out of his ass would be too charitable because what he's saying is complete nonsense. So he says that um, if you had a sensible middle party like the forward party, it would force Democrats to go back to being the sensible middle party. How are they not already a middle party? If you compare them to other parties around the world, they don't look like modern social democratic parties that you see in Europe and Scandinavia. They look like right-wing parties in Europe and Scandinavia. They look like the Tories. They look like more conservative parties because the Democratic Party is inherently conservative because they are a pro-capitalist party. We don't have a real alternative in the United States. They don't offer voters an anti-capitalist pro-worker option. So to pretend as if the left has any power at all is just a joke. And, you know, um, Bill Maher, he used an analogy about Biden being like a grandpa. He said, Biden reminds me of some grandfather. And when AOC and the woke people come in his office, he just goes along. He doesn't really understand it. Oh, OK. Is that, is that the case? Well, there's actually um, a situation like this in real life where AOC and the woke people got a couple of seconds with Joe Biden, and she shared this photograph to her timeline where she says that she explained to him why student loan forgiveness is necessary. Now, perhaps in Bill Maher's alternate timeline, this has happened where Biden has canceled all student debt. But where we're all living, the rest of us, he still hasn't done that. Back in April, he said a decision on student loans was coming in weeks, and now it's August 1st. Then in July, he announced again that a decision was coming in a few weeks. Now, perhaps this time we might actually hear something in a couple of weeks because the due date for student loan repayments are coming up. But I mean, is he going to forgive all student loans as AOC requested? No, he already stated he's not doing that. He won't even cancel 50,000. We don't even know if he's going to say that he's canceling 10,000 when he announces his plans in the coming weeks, if he even does that. Odds are he'll just postpone student loan repayments until after the election, kick the can down the road. 
So what Bill Maher is saying, even the analogy that he uses, there's an example of that in real life and it hasn't borne out. It's just, I, I can't help but laugh because Bill Maher isn't even living in reality anymore. He's as out of touch as QAnon supporters. Like this might, must be like liberal QAnon for him. It's not as diluted, but still it is an alternate form of reality. It's just, it's so untrue that you can't really respond to it with facts because somebody that far gone, they just, they're not going to listen to you. The problem isn't that Joe Biden is too far left. The problem is that he isn't left enough. When Joe Biden was actually delivering for the American people, he had a higher approval rating. When they had the child tax credit, giving money to families, his approval rating was higher. When he distributed checks, his approval rating was higher. And now nobody's satisfied with him. He hasn't even done the bare minimum. He said he'd fight for voting rights. He hasn't done that. This is something that all Democrats agree on, the left and the centers and the centrists rather in the Democratic Party. I mean, when it comes to Roe, nobody's happy with his handling of this. He's not putting abortion clinics on federal land. And this is an issue that unites the Democratic Party, but Biden still managed to fuck that up somehow. I mean, when it comes to student debt cancellation, descheduling marijuana. Biden has been MIA when it comes to him mismanaging COVID-19, starving Afghanistan, using Trump-era immigration policies to deport immigrants cruelly so. How can you say that this man is caving to radicals? To say that, you've got to be a fucking dipshit. And his show keeps getting renewed. So the question is, like, who's watching this and enjoying it? There's enough viewers, obviously, for HBO to keep renewing it, so this caters to someone, but which demographic is, is this appealing to? I mean, he shifted to the right, so is it just all Republicans? Do centrist Democrats still enjoy this? Who is this for? Because it's, it's delusional. It's for delusional people at this point for him to say things just like that. That's not to say that Bill Maher gets it wrong 100% of the time, but I mean, with the things that he said lately, when he misses... Jesus Christ, does he miss? It's just he keeps further embarrassing himself, and I don't even know what to say, but this isn't really surprising if you've been following Bill Maher. As he gets gets more out of touch, he continues to shift further and further into delusional territory, and as he continues to do that, then I'm assuming the quality of his show will continue to degrade. So, yeah, Bill Maher thinks that Biden is caving to the left. It feels like he's joking. Like, it's so stupid if I just read that and I didn't know who said that quote, I think it was a joke, but Bill Maher is dead serious. And that's just, that's just laughable. I want to talk about the threat that the Republican Party poses to democracy. It's been kind of a common theme on the show lately, but they pose a threat to democracy in a multitude of ways. Some of them just outright reject the results of the 2020 election. Some of them are explicitly anti-democracy. Mike Flynn, Trump's national security director, actually said that there's no reason why we couldn't have a Myanmar-style military coup here in the United States. If Trump gets a second term, who knows what he'll do? He's already detailing his radical plan to purge civil servants from government in order to install Trump loyalists. Now, this is the hallmark of authoritarianism because dictators, once they seize power, that's the first thing that they do. And Supreme Court justices who are supposed to be apolitical pose perhaps the greatest clear and present threat to democracy with the case of Morvey Harper, where they will possibly allow, using independent state legislature theory, states to subvert the will of their voters. But there is a new way 
that the Republican Party wants to subvert democracy, and that is by rewriting the United States Constitution. You heard that right. Now, it's a gigantic task, and the odds of them succeeding here are slim. Having said that, though, not zero percent. And the momentum that they're gaining to rewrite the Constitution is something that everyone should seriously pay attention to. Now, let's talk about a December 2021 conference by Alec. So, Alex Koch wrote about this in the Center for Media and Democracy, detailing the GOP's plan at this particular Alec conference to call for a constitutional convention. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can amend the Constitution. It can be done by Congress, or you can have the states call for an Article 5 convention. Now, the former way is the way that we've added amendments to the Constitution historically, but an Article 5 convention has never been done before. So what is an Article 5 convention? Well, if you get 34 states to pass resolutions calling for an Article 5 convention, then they can rewrite the Constitu Constitution. So that's essentially the route that the GOP is pursuing some members of the gop is pursuing now in order to get 34 states on board you have to hold majorities in all of those states and you need 38 states in total to ratify whatever amendment was come up with at this new you know potential constitutional convention so it's difficult how would you do that well at that december alec conference rick santorum gave us a little bit of insight by hinting at extreme gerrymandering he said rural voters, even though there are fewer of them, actually have an outsized granted power under this process. And we have the opportunity as a result of that to have a supermajority, even though we may not even be in an absolute majority when it comes to people who agree with us. But because of the way the concentration of votes has changed in this country, we can actually accomplish things. Now, to be clear, Rick Santorum was making the case for an Article 5 convention using gerrymandering to secure majorities needed to get enough states to pass resolutions calling for an Article 5 convention. So the question is, why are we talking about this December conference? This is from last year, so what's new? Well, a lot has changed, and a lot in terms of the momentum that this movement has gotten, because that conference was essentially a flashpoint for the movement, but because of recent successes that conservatives have had, they felt emboldened, and this movement has made a lot of really big gains. Insiders Grace Panetta and Brent Griffiths detail how this movement has gained quite a bit of momentum since that December 2021 conference in an article titled, Republicans' Next Big Play is to, quote, scare the hell out of Washington by rewriting the Constitution, and they're willing to play the long game. So the question is, how many states have actually passed a resolution calling for an Article 5 convention? And you might wonder, it's got to be like two or three, right? Because this is a fairly fringe movement. Well, as of December of 2021, the number was 15. 15. Now, what's the new count? Since the movement has gained momentum, what's the new tally? 19. Four more states since December have passed resolutions calling for an Article 5 convention, meaning they are more than halfway towards their goal of getting 34 states to call for an Article 5 convention. They only need 15 more states. Now, again, you need 38 states to ratify whatever amendment that they come up with. But that is a considerable amount of momentum, a considerable amount of progress that they've made. So what's fueling them? 
Well, as Insider explains, the December 2021 ALEC meeting represents a flashpoint in a movement spearheaded by powerful conservative interests, some of whom are tied to Trump world and share many of Trump's goals to alter the nation's bedrock legal text since 1788. It's an effort that has largely taken place out of public view, but interviews with a dozen people involved in the Constitutional Convention movement, along with documents and audio recordings reviewed by Insider, reveal a sprawling, well-funded, at least partly by cryptocurrency and impassioned campaign taking root across multiple states, notably feeling them success. During an extraordinary few weeks in June, the Supreme Court's three new Trump appointees powered the reversal of Roe v. Wade. They fortified gun rights and bolstered religious freedoms. Future presidents now have less power to confront the climate crisis. Each win is the product of a steady and, in some cases, decades-long quest by conservatives to bend the arc of history rightward. This isn't an exercise either. State lawmakers are invited to huddle in Denver starting on Sunday to learn more about the inner workings of a possible constitutional convention at Academy of States 3.0, the third installment of a boot camp preparing state lawmakers in anticipation of an imminent Article 5 convention. Rob Nadelson, a constitutional scholar and senior fellow at the Independence Institute who closely studies Article 5 of the Constitution, predicted to Insider there's a 50% chance that the United States will witness a constitutional convention in the next five years. Whether it happens he said, is highly dependent on Republican success winning state legislatures during the 2022 midterm elections. So let's just pause here. What's fueling their success is success, right? Because they saw how much was accomplished during this last session with the Supreme Court, what was formerly viewed as impossible was achievable. Now they thought, well, if we can overturn Roe v. Wade, essentially introduce prayer in schools, not in the classrooms, but at least legalize it in some ways. If we could do all of this within the span of one year, what else is possible? We can rewrite the entire constitution if we play our cards right and if we're committed to the long game. So because they were successful, conservatives have been emboldened and to show how emboldened they are, well, four more states are signing on to this process. Now, what exactly do they want to change about the Constitution? Well, right now, they're limiting the scope of what they want to change. So first of all, they want term limits. Now, some people uh, would agree with that, right? I agree with term limits, but I don't think that doing this constitutionally is the way it should be done because term limits when introduced in some Latin American uh, countries has led to actually increased corruption. So if it's done legislatively, if, it, if it's a disaster somehow, then you can reverse it. But if it's constitutionally ratified, then you can't, if you don't like it, if we don't like the result, we can't reverse that. So that's like the least gripe or the least problematic thing about this. What they wanna do, which would be disastrous, is they want a constitutional amendment for a balanced budget, essentially permanent PAYGO, which means that nothing that the left wants could ever be possible. Medicare for all, climate change mitigate, like nothing could be possible because you can't pass any legislation unless there's a pay for. And so right there, so much is off the table. But the most vague and worrisome segment is them trying to limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. They're not really saying how. They're using term limits, I think, kind of as a Trojan horse to create this veneer 
of populism because a lot of people are dissatisfied with members of Congress and they support term limits. But it's more than just those three goals. As Insider continues, what's new now is the ever-evolving power coupling of a corporation-backed ideological juggernaut led by ALEC, a nonprofit organization with close ties to large tobacco and drug companies, and a determined Republican Party increasingly dominating many of the nation's 50 state houses. If they were successful, a constitutional convention led by conservatives could trigger sweeping changes to the Constitution. Their goals include gutting federal environmental standards, nixing nationwide education requirements, and creating an incredibly high threshold for Washington, D.C., or a territory to earn statehood. Some would like to make it difficult, if not impossible, for someone, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Anthony Fauci, for example, to work for decades within the federal government. Constitutional convention boosters include many of Trump's current and former allies, including conservative legal scholar John Eastman, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and Fox News personnel like Sean Hannity and Mark Levin. Eastman, who recently had his phone seized by federal agents investigating Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results, attended a 2016 mock convention hosted by the Convention of States. Six years later, the Academy of States 3.0 taking place Sunday ahead of the National Conference of State Legislatures 2022 Summit in Denver. On its website, the group boldly forecasts that a new constitutional convention could take place in 24 months and quotes former President Barack Obama in emphasizing, you can't change Washington from the inside. It's a heavy lift, but it's not out of reach. Arn Pearson, the Center for Media and Democracy's executive director and a close watcher of the convention movement, told Insider, I think it's a real threat. Yeah, and I think that it's a real threat as well. Not as big of an immediate threat as Morvey Harper or Trump getting a second term, but nonetheless, this is something that we need to pay attention to. Now, one thing that is working in our favor is not just the 38 state requirement to ratify whatever they come up with in the event 34 Republican-led states call for a resolution for an Article 5 convention, but it's also the fact that a lot of conservatives, including Trump Republicans like Andy Biggs, are explicitly against a constitutional convention. In fact, in 2012, the RNC passed a resolution saying that they condemn constitutional conventions. And part of that might have been because they were afraid by a different Article 5 convention threat, and that is Wolfpack. So for those of you who follow the Young Turks, Cenk Uygur had a movement to call for an Article 5 convention to get money out of politics. And there were several uh, blue states that passed these resolutions, although some states have went backwards and rescinded their resolutions because they don't like this prospect of a potential runaway convention where you call a convention for something small and the scope increases and then you could open the door to a bunch of terrible things. Now, I think that because there's this 38 state need to uh, or requirement rather to ratify this amendment i i'm not necessarily worried about a runaway amendment uh but whatever conservatives want to do in any way that they specifically want to rewrite the constitution or add amendments that horrifies me because these people are authoritarian and they don't care about freedom they don't care about americans they just want to impose their minoritarian views on all of us but i think a lot of republicans backed away from an article 5 convention after you know, getting money out of politics gained momentum. So now it seems to be switching, you know, momentum for Wolfpack has kind of died down as far as I know, but momentum in this opposite direction has 
has certainly sped up. Now, the question is, who's funding this? Because the article mentioned this is a well-funded movement. So who's funding this? Well, they state tax filings obtained by the Center for Media and Democracy reveal the groups, which are not required to disclose their donors, have received millions from Coke-connected Donors Trust, the Mercer family, and groups linked to powerful conservative lawyer Leonard Leo. A 2020 internal audit of Convention of States obtained by the group revealed that a $1.3 million donation made in Bitcoin made up 16% of the group's budget in 2019. Two donations totaling 2.5 million accounted for 36% of the group's 2020 budget. So you have some really wealthy, powerful people behind this. So this is worrying and it's something that we should know about because this has largely been a covert movement. A lot of, a lot of us have not heard about this. So again, I just want to reiterate that in the near future, whether or not this will be successful, they're saying they can get a constitutional convention within 24 months. Experts are saying 50-50 mm, chance within the next five years. I think that the most biggest clear and present danger to democracy without question is the Supreme Court with Morvey Harper. That is something where, you know, if they're able to legitimize independent state legislature theory, they don't even need a constitutional convention because they'll stay in power in perpetuity and we'll see minority rule for the foreseeable future. So, you know, it's um, it's something that we definitely need to keep on our radar. Don't freak out about this too much right now, but just be aware of what's happening. There is a growing movement of conservatives, a once fringe movement, mind you, of conservatives that want to rewrite the Constitution, add amendments, change it up a little bit. And that momentum has considerably you know shifted in their direction and that's something that we all need to pay attention to because in the event they were successful with this movement it would be a disaster and sure it seems impossible but a lot of things seemed impossible like the repeal of roe v wade like an insurrection attempt in the united states so they're emboldened and they're not going to stop at total abortion bans they're not going to stop at morvey harper they want it all they want everything. They want all the power. And this is just another way that they can secure power forever and kill American democracy. So don't freak out about it, but definitely do pay attention to this. Recent overturning of Roe v. Wade has sparked concerns that access to contraception and gay rights could also be endangered. We all know that. But are Republicans themselves in danger of overplaying their hand by moving too far to the right too fast and possibly alienating moderate voters? What we're seeing in Florida, I can't even comprehend. Mm -hmm. This is a state where we have a housing crisis. This is a state where we have an insurance crisis. This is a state where we have a climate crisis. And instead, Ron DeSantis is focusing to focus uh, uh, focusing on drag queens. And so listen, yes, do I think a five-year-old should be at a drag show? No. But you know what? If you are for parental choice when it comes to your kid wearing a mask to school, if you are for parental choice when it comes to your kid learning about slavery and learning the true history of this country, then why in the hell can't you be about parental choice on whether you take your kid to a drag show or not? Well, that's true. This is, you know, you're cherry-picking this. I'm, 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 listen, I, I looked at the, at, the, at the top causes of uh, endangerment for children, of children's death. It's firearms. It's car accidents. You know, all it's drowning. Right, it is Anna. not drag queen. Right, I'm yet Anna. to see a kid who but, dies from being a to drag queen. That was a clip from the August 1st episode of The View shared by the Deputy Press Secretary of Ron DeSantis, Brian Griffin. And he says, The View emailed our office on Friday asking for us to arrange an appearance from Governor DeSantis on the show. We would be honored, they wrote. 
Thoughts? Now, the reason why he shared that particular clip was because obviously they were criticizing Ron DeSantis in said clip. So the juxtaposition with, you know, them criticizing him and also extending an invite is supposedly going to make The View look bad. But I mean, they're obviously critical of him. So does Ron DeSantis want to face some of his critics? And the answer ultimately is no, because as you'll learn, they declined The View's invite. Now, we'll talk about their reasoning in a moment here, but it's just interesting that this like big, strong, tough guy doesn't want to go on a program because they were big meanies and his fifis were hurt. Yeah. And what they were saying was not uncharitable. I rarely agree with Ana Navarro on anything, but what she said there was factually correct. As Axios reports, last week, Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz told school districts to ignore federal guidelines aimed at protecting students and teachers from discrimination because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that guidance was issued following an executive order signed by Joe Biden, which creates federal standards when it comes to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Ron DeSantis is saying here in the state of Florida, we discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah, so how can you say that their criticism is somehow bad when it's accurate? On top of that, he's going after small businesses who are LGBTQ plus inclusive. As HuffPost explains, the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation filed an administrative complaint for disorderly conduct against our house restaurant, citing the state Supreme Court ruling against men impersonating women. According to the complaint, a copy of which was obtained by NBC News, the video shows what appears to be a transgender dancer leading a young girl by the hand and walking through respondents' dining area. The dancer's buttocks were fully exposed and his g-string style bikini bottom was stuffed with dollar bills the dancer's breasts were also fully exposed noted the complaint the complaint alleges that our house violated state public nuisance law by becoming manifestly injurious to the morals or manners of the people the department cited the 1947 florida supreme court decision that found that men impersonating women in a suggestive performance constitutes a public nuisance lgbtq activists view the action as the opening of a campaign to shut down all drag shows and go after trans people. Now, the whole reason why Ron DeSantis claims he is against CRT and had to sign the Don't Say Gay bill into law was because he believes in parental rights. Parents should have the autonomy to raise their children without the state or federal government indoctrinating them into their values. But here he is doing the opposite, saying, actually, I get to decide, the state gets to decide what is and isn't appropriate for your child. Now, I watched the video in question. It was shared by libs of TikTok. And while I think that family-friendly LGBTQ plus events and drag shows are generally fine for children, assuming that they're age appropriate for this particular event, I probably wouldn't feel comfortable personally taking my nephews or my niece to that event. But I also wouldn't feel comfortable taking my nephews or my niece to an NRA event. I didn't let my nephew play, you know, M-rated video games when he was 12 years old and he wanted to. But there are different levels of comfort for parents. So, you know, when I worked at Walmart, I was in the electronics department and I would warn parents that the game that they were purchasing for their prepubescent child was rated M and it had violence and GTA 5, there was torture in it. And many of them were fine with that. So it just depends on what the comfort level is. But what's important is that there's no harm being done here. That child in that particular video is not being abused. Perhaps it's a little bit inappropriate based on your comfort level, right? But what matters is what the parents want. And if a parent thinks that that's fine, who is Ron DeSantis to tell them that it's not okay? 
You know, does Ron DeSantis go after kids at NRA shows? Does Ron DeSantis go after, you know, Hooters or any supposed sexualization of children when it comes to heterosexual things? Well, of course not, because he's trying to go after LGBTQ plus people exclusively. And, part and in particular with this business, he wants to get their liquor license revoked, which would be catastrophic for their business. And he knows that there's no harm that's being done, hence why he had to cite a 1947 state Supreme Court decision alleging that this event was injurious to the morals and manners of the people. So in other words, it's indecent, and that's why he's against it. Okay, well, don't take your kids to that event. Don't do things that you view as indecent, so long as there's no abuse, nothing illegal going on there, no harm being done. It's none of your fucking business, but Ron DeSantis is using the power of the state to crack down on parental rights, to crack down on small businesses. So I'm sorry, when you've created this statewide witch hunt against LGBTQ plus people and you don't apply the same standard of outrage when it comes to heterosexual equivalent events, I mean, people are right to criticize you considering that Americans are more accepting of LGBTQ plus people than ever before, but yet he doesn't want to face his critics. And because The View had the audacity to criticize him, he ultimately decided to reject their invite and his deputy press secretary shared this press release, citing times that they criticized Ron DeSantis on the show. So Joy Behar in August 2021 said, you're just short of calling DeSantis a negligent homicidal sociopath because that's what he is. She added, what is he doing? He's risking the lives of children, children's parents, their grandparents, anyone they may come into contact with so he can appeal to his white supremacist base so he can continue in his career and get reelected. They're presumably talking about his COVID policies, which were catastrophic. Sonny Hostin in June of 2022, Death Sanders, I think he's a fascist and a bigot. Accurate. And in Navarro, April 2022, on his policy saying it's anti-black, it's anti-gay, it's anti-LGBTQ plus community, and for some reason, the Republican base responds to it, and it's anti-American. It's what happens in Venezuela, it's what happens in Nicaragua. I agree with her, although I think that the comparison to Latin American countries is unnecessary. Sonny Hostin in February of 2022 with his policies. It started with CRT, let's remember that, and those are anti-history laws, anti-black history laws, really. She said, if you start coming after black people, what comes next, right? Of course, the LGBTQ plus community, and then women, and then other marginalized groups. And let's be clear, what Sonny Hostin said there in that last quote was 100% accurate because it started with CRT panic last year in 2021, and then this year they've moved on to LGBTQ plus people. This hyper-focus on drag shows and don't say gay laws. And now we're seeing reproductive rights of women being taken away by the right. So what they're saying about Ron DeSantis, these are accurate criticisms. They're harsh, but nonetheless, they're accurate. And even if they were uncharitable, don't you as a public figure feel the need to defend yourself? Well, no, because Ron DeSantis views this as a sort of power move, but in actuality, it's a bitch move. It makes you look like you don't want to respond to your critics. Now, his actual press secretary, Christine Pushaw, tweeted this, liberal media wants to interview Governor DeSantis because his popularity draws ratings, but Governor Ron DeSantis will not assist failing legacy media outlets in growing an audience for their smear pieces and biased reporting laden with contempt for Americans. Okay, first of all, they're not reporters, they're commentators. So they can be biased in their capacity as political commentators. They might have dumb views, uninformed views sometimes. I often criticize, you know, hosts on The View 
but they're not reporters. So to claim that they're like inaccurate and biased really is not applicable to this particular situation. But I mean, this is a fascist move right out of Trump's playbook. Let me remind you of this 2016 article from Vox. Trump will skip Fox News' debate because of Megyn Kelly. So somebody who's a Democrat, a small d Democrat, they actually believe in letting the media criticize politicians, people in power. Even if you disagree, you know, this is a job of the media. They're supposed to hold elected officials accountable. And oftentimes they fail. But in the instance of criticizing Ron DeSantis, the ladies on The View have been pretty accurate. So if you don't want to face them, that says more about you than it does about them. But they're trying to flip this and make it seem as if, oh, well, we won't give in to your bias. We won't legitimize your news show. When in actuality, it's because he's afraid to face them because he knows that their criticisms are accurate and correct. He doesn't want to defend his COVID policy that led to thousands and thousands of people dying unnecessarily so in the state of Florida. He doesn't want to defend his bigoted don't say gay law now knowing that the effect has led to discrimination against queer teachers and queer students. So even if he tries to spin this and his team tries to spin this as a power move, in actuality, it makes him look weak. But this is what fascists do. They don't like criticism. They try to ignore and eventually shut down their critics. Somebody who uh, Ron DeSantis has taken cues from, Viktor Orban, the dictator of Hungary, uh, he claims that you have to control the media. That's the way that you consolidate power. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but, you know, if he already copied Don't Say Gay from Viktor Orban, perhaps he's copying that same media policy or, you know, guideline for himself. So, you know, that's where we're at. Ron DeSantis is too afraid to face critics on The View. And um, I don't blame him because with how terrible of a governor he's been, actually facing your critics when they have legitimate criticisms isn't going to end well for you. So the best move for him politically would be to just dodge this appearance altogether. But it makes him look weak, even if he thinks that this is going to make him seem really strong and disciplined. No, it makes you look like a bitch, Ron DeSantis. Folks, we need to talk about the best story of the year, perhaps. So Donald Trump decided to weigh in in the Senate race. It's a GOP primary in Missouri, and he made an endorsement. The problem is he's a little bit unclear about who he's actually endorsing. So he released this statement. There is a big election in the great state of Missouri, and we must send a MAGA champion and true warrior to the U.S. Senate, someone who will fight for border security, election integrity, our military and great veterans, together with having a powerful toughness on crime and the border. We need a person who will not back down to the radical left lunatics who are destroying our country. I trust the great people of Missouri on this one to make up their own minds, much as they did when they gave me landslide victories in 2016 and 2020 elections, and I am therefore proud to announce that Eric has my complete and total endorsement. <laughs> okay, now the problem <laughs> is that there's <laughs> there's literally two Eric's in the GOP primary in this race. So he's endorsing Eric in all caps, but nobody nobody knows which Eric he's endorsing. And, and both of them are claiming his endorsement. So Eric number one, Eric Greitens tweeted, I'm honored to receive the president's endorsement. From the beginning, I've been the true MAGA champion fighting against the rhino establishment backing Schmidt. President Trump said it best when he characterized Schmidt's campaign as great dishonesty in politics. Now the other Eric... 
Eric Schmidt tweeted, <laughs> I'm grateful for President Trump's endorsement as the only America First candidate who has actually fought for election integrity, border security, and against the left indoctrination of our kids. I'll take that fight to the Senate to save America. Now, at the time that I filmed this, Trump still has not clarified which of the two Eric's that he wants to support. But Eric Greitens, uh, he made a tweet that leads us to believe that perhaps Trump endorsed him because of a phone call that he talks about. He writes, I just had a great phone call with President Trump. I thanked him for his support. Together, we will MAGA and save America. So if Trump called that Eric, then clearly he's the chosen Eric, right? Well, no. <laughs> Because it gets better. Trump called both Eric's. <laughs> the fuck? So as Mediaite explains, Greitens was likely speaking of the Trump call described by Politico where the former president reportedly called Greitens with the news of his endorsement. Trump made a similar call to Schmidt, but didn't tell either Eric that he was... <laughs> This is so insane, but didn't tell either Eric that he was also endorsing the other. This ambiguousness created by Trump leaves the Republican base to divide itself and fight it out to see which Eric will be the Republican nominee for the Senate. So Trump literally called both Eric's to congratulate them on his endorsement, and they're both thinking, oh wow, I got this endorsement. They're both bragging about it, and nobody knows who Trump actually wants to endorse. I say, let them have an all-out duel to the death, and the surviving Eric claims Trump's endorsement. Trump should respect the results of the duel. That's why I think that, you know, this should uh, go about, uh, or how he should go about this. Um, either way, so now you have people in MAGA world butting heads because some are saying, no, 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 he's endorsing Eric number one, and then the other side of MAGA world saying, no, he's endorsing our Eric. So first of all, Dan Bongino has made it very clear who he believes that Trump has endorsed. So in response to Eric Greitens boasting about Trump's endorsement on Twitter, Bongino responds by saying, nope, not a chance in hell. Flush that seat down the toilet if Greitens wins. So Bongino apparently doesn't believe that Trump endorsed him. Also in response to Greitens' call with Trump, Bongino writes, bullshit, read the endorsement. This dude is a fraud. So Bongino's like, no, 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 read the endorsement again. Read it carefully. It's clear who Trump is endorsing. It's Eric. And I've just got to share this response to Bongino's tweet with this Trump supporter saying, why is Trump doing this? Oh my God, this is the best story ever. American politics is so stupid that you can't not laugh at the things that happen sometimes. And by the way, fuck you, Dan Bongino, for blocking me because I had to turn on incognito mode to get the screenshots for these tweets. But that's besides the point. According to Bongino, Schmidt is clearly the favorite of the MAGA movement, right? Maybe not so much because Kimberly Guilfoyle, Trump's daughter-in-law, I think, or maybe they're engaged. Anyway, she's uh, the partner of Trump Jr. She made it very clear she supports the other Eric. Missouri, get out there and vote for Eric Greitens, a true patriot who puts America first, the favorite of the MAGA movement. We need Eric's leadership. So she's very clearly choosing Eric Greitens. And because I'm an agent of chaos, I'm going to distribute this video into the world to sow even more confusion within the ranks of MAGA chuds. Missouri, get out there and vote for Eric Schmidt, a true patriot who puts America first, the favorite of the MAGA movement. Hmm. Maybe she endorsed Greitens, maybe she endorsed Schmidt. Who knows, you saw the video. She said Schmidt and Greitens, so which one is the accurate video, folks? It's really difficult to determine which one is uh, authentic. 
either way, I love this. I hope that he doesn't clarify. Um, you know, the primary is taking place today. So, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Either way, it's too late because voters don't really know. Both Eric's have legitimately a reason to believe that they were endorsed. So I, I, I love this. I feel like this should be the strategy going forward with Trump endorsements. Uh, although, you know, it's it's not that often that you get two Eric's in a particular GOP primary. But if it does happen again, Trump should do the same thing because there's no doubt in my mind that he's got to know what he's doing. And it's not that he's being indecisive. I think that he just wanted to watch the world burn and he's laughing his ass off right now. That's That's got to be what's happening because, I mean, how do you just endorse Eric in all caps and then you just you leave it as is? I mean, Jesus Christ. Either way, I love this story so much. Do progressive Democrats owe Joe Manchin an apology for demonizing him these past few months? Well, no, look, this is how the governing process works. You've got activists and organizers who've been pushing and pressuring. In fact, Joe Manchin himself said, and I quote, that the dogs came after me after uh, there was a lot of righteous anger after he'd pulled out the first mm -hmm. time. And so this shows that our democratic process only works if you work at it. And then there are uh, people who have been out there fighting on climate legislation, fighting on a more fair uh, approach to taxation who really do share the credit with Joe Manchin on this. And so no apologies needed, but this is how the governing process works. You just watched a CNN host with a straight face, mind you, seriously ask progressive Abdul El Sayed if progressives owe Joe Manchin an apology. Really? You're seriously asking this on national television. What do you even say to that? First of all, before you parade Joe Manchin around as a hero, we don't even know if this is going to pass yet because Kirsten Sinema has remained silent and she's long opposed narrowing the carried interest loophole, which is making Democrats nervous that she won't support this. So we don't even know if it's going to pass. Second of all, we have to applaud this coal baron for dictating the terms of climate policy. Are you serious about that? Yes, there are some good things in this bill, such as some investments in renewable technology. The problem is that it also simultaneously allows for more environmental destruction. Why? Because that serves the interests of Joe Manchin's donors in the fossil fuel industry. As Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, the agreement was reached as part of an effort to secure Manchin's support for the Inflation Reduction Act, a proposed budget reconciliation bill that includes renewable energy investments, drug price reforms, and a number of giveaways to the fossil fuel industry. Because its provisions fall outside the bounds of reconciliation, the side deal must be passed as separate legislation. According to a one-page summary obtained by the Washington Post, the the agreement in its current form would set new two-year limits or maximum timelines for environmental reviews for major projects, a potentially massive victory for the fossil fuel industry that could also entail benefits for renewable energy production. It would also aim to streamline the government processes for deciding approvals for energy projects by centralizing decision-making with one lead agency, the Post notes. The bill would also attempt to clear the way for the approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would transport Appalachian shale gas about 300 miles from West Virginia to Virginia. This pipeline is a key priority of mansions. As the New York Times notes, that move would take cases involving the pipeline away from the 4th District where environmentalists had found success. So if you were one of the individuals who found it a little bit odd that a modern-day coal baron was this enthusiastic about so-called climate change mitigation legislation to the point where he's willing to try to persuade Kirsten Cinema to support this, that's why because there's a lot of giveaways to the fossil fuel industry, including pork for him, specifically for 
his donors. Now, on top of that, um, I want to share this video from uh, the People versus Fossil Fuels that talks about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, because this would be a disaster if it were approved. Mountain Valley Pipeline is a project of Equitrans Midstream. It's a 42-inch high-pressure fracked gas pipeline that is creating a sacrifice zone across Appalachia. I'm Russell Chisholm. I'm on top of Brush Mountain in Montgomery County in southwest Virginia. Behind me is the Mountain Valley Pipeline. This is Mari Johnson. I'm standing on Doe Creek Farm in Giles County, Virginia. It breaks my heart to see the destruction that's happening here on this farm. We've been resisting Mountain Valley Pipeline since 2014. The resistance to this is because we understand that pipelines are inherently bad, these kinds of pipelines. They take away the property rights. They, they just threaten our water and our environment, especially this pristine water that's here in Monroe and Giles County. I'm glad that Joe Biden has declared code red for climate, but it has been code red down here in Appalachia for a long time with the fossil fuel industry calling the shots. It's not just a regional fight anymore, and it's now a national fight, and I say it's a global fight. So it is time for us to take our message from these hills, from this devastation and destruction, to the front steps of the White House, and demand that Joe Biden keep his climate promises, and put an end to these projects once and for all. So I'm asking you to join me for the Build Back Fossil Free rallies. Join me in Washington, D.C., October 11th through the 15th, to stand in solidarity with all the pipeline fights across the country. Our planet depends on it. Think about that. This climate change mitigation compromise, and it is a compromise, right? It is going to lead to the approval of that pipeline, among other terrible things for the environment. So, you know, I think that we need to wait to decide on whether or not we support this based on cost-benefit analyses from environmental groups, because there's already a number of poison pills in this legislation that make it seem as if maybe it's more bad than good. I, I genuinely don't know. There's good things in that legislation, right? But the problem is that when it comes to the environmental impact, is there so much destruction that it's going to kind of negate from any of the good when it comes to investments in clean energy? Now, despite the negatives here, Joe Manchin gets to pretend as if he's some sort of a hero because of the good provisions in the bill. So take a look at this interview uh, that he had on Fox News, where it gets pretty heated yeah but the, the elections are going to need some help you've got a president who's i am not going to make a statement approval on that. rating is like as low as congress's well i mean no we offense, all do something but you right? know that are when you, you get into the 30s no one's that popular Harris, and that's are this you president. scared we're going to do something good to help our country I'm, and someone might take My credit served. for it are you kidding Service well, is in the Bible. Like That's what we do. We serve our fellow man and woman. That's exactly what I'm don't, doing. Don't, don't, exactly don't make Harris. this personal because it's not. So look at the way that he's framing this. He's framing this as him serving the people, the people of West Virginia specifically, when if this passes, it would lead the way for the approval of a pipeline that could potentially poison their drinking water, not to mention trample on ind indigenous sovereignty. So he gets to have plausible deniability, right? He gets to pretend as if, oh, well, I'm the hero, applaud me, because there are actually good things in this legislation, like a tax right, a tax hike on corporations. So he gets the boost about that while downplaying simultaneously all of the negative environmental impacts that this bill will have. Take a look at this clip. We gotta know the bottom line on taxes. Let I me mean, tell you the bottom line on that, Harris. You wanna know the bottom line? The Joint Committee on Taxation? 
That opinion was only written by my friends on the Republican side. It was not done by the whole Joint Committee. So that is unfair too. So let's be accurate what we're doing here. The bottom line is how in the world can you be raising taxes when all we're saying is the wealthiest uh, corporations in America, 55 of them pay zero to help this great country of ours, to defend ourselves. Well, how does this change that? Because it, that's, that's minimum, part of the corporate 15%. structuring. It's right? a minimum of 15%. The tax rate was at 35% before 2017. Right. Then it went to 21%. Mm -hmm. That was a tremendous savings, but that's not good enough, I guess. All we're saying is at 15% minimum, everyone in West Virginia I know, and most people around the country, pay a 21% corporate or greater. So why can't the greatest uh, billion dollars of, of revenue a year, are, why can't they pay at least 15% for this great country? Are you trying to also say, because this is, this is the part that counts. I mean, people look at their corporations and they know they've got great tax accountants. Heck, they have complete departments trying to come up with ways to, to find loopholes and, and, keep, We're and to hire that. people as well. I mean, let, let's not forget that too. Um, but $400,000 was supposed to be the cutoff, and I'm reading, and I am reading, Senator, that who's it's paying, below who's that Who's paying now. any taxes? Who's paying any taxes that doesn't have a corporation that has revenue of over a billion dollars a year? Not one person. Not one person, Harris. You're assuming because they'll pass that on. The companies were paying zero. No, no, no. I'm asking a different question than you're answering. I'm saying Americans, $400,000 and below now, are going to be taxed. Their that's taxes wrong. are going to go wrong, up. That's a lie. That is a pure, outright lie. So their taxes are not going to go up? Not at all. And you know one thing? How about the people that are going to be saving as far as on their Medicare, $288 billion who are paying okay. higher prices than they should? Aren't they? They didn't even assume All that right. in the revaluation. They didn't talk about any of that. How so, about if gasoline prices go down because we're producing more oil to make more well, gasoline? Well, and those are going to fluctuate. See, this is why I hate this so much, because right there, he's undeniably correct. He's correct. And he, I think, did a good job at shooting down her lie. But the problem is that Again, he gets to pretend to be the hero currently while bolstering, um, you know, this populist image that he may be trying to cultivate, saying we're trying to, you know, raise taxes on corporations. But at the same time, minimizing the harmful aspects about this legislation, such as the unpopular Mountain Valley Pipeline. So it's frustrating that we're in this predicament where the only opportunity where Democrats can get anything accomplished with regard to climate mitigation is to essentially let a coal baron dictate the terms of what is and isn't possible. And even if there are good things in this bill, aside from the climate thing, you know, more subsidies for the Affordable Care Act and whatnot, corporate tax hike, you know, we don't know if this is going to do more harm than good with respect to the environment. Because again, sure, we're allowing for more investments in renewable technology, but how much environmental devastation will this bill cause? It's a total catch-22. So this is where we're at, where this is our only chance at climate mitigation, but we don't even know if it's actually going to do what we hope it does. All well, Joe Manchin gets to pretend to be a hero, and media will pretend as if he's a hero, except for right-wing media who is attacking him because they're against this because they don't support the, the corporate tax hike and they also don't want any investments in renewable technology. So it's such a bizarre predicament to be found in. But either way, you know, if Joe Manchin is this enthusiastic about something, that should be a huge red flag for everyone. So either way, you know, we don't necessarily know if this will even pass because Kirsten Cinema 
is in agreement with Republicans that corporate taxes shouldn't be raised. Capital gains taxes shouldn't be increased. So we don't know what's going to happen. But either way, one thing we know for damn sure is that Joe Manchin is no fucking hero. And stop pretending as if he is one. Twelve days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years and when informed did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way and as of two days ago it fell free and clear into my possession and that is how i know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about sandy Hook. and that right there was the exact moment when alex jones realized he was screwed so that was the attorney representing the sandy hook families in their defamation case against jones providing jones with definitive proof that he perjured himself. Now, in the event you haven't been following this trial, here's some additional context courtesy of the Daily Beast. On Tuesday, Jones insisted under oath that he had fully complied with the court's discovery process and that there were no text messages on his phone in which he discussed Sandy Hook as the other side had requested. In other words, those text messages that you insisted did not exist, they're right here. You under oath claimed that there was no other text messages. You lied. And now you're busted. You committed perjury. Good job. Now, to be clear, this is not a case to determine whether or not Alex Jones is culpable for defamation. That's already been determined. But this case is about uh, determining how much he's obligated to pay in damages to the families of Sandy Hook, who he did indeed defame. Now, let's watch the extended clip with his reaction. As you're going to see, he was panicking. Mr. Jones, you know how an iPhone works, right? You've had iPhone text messaging for several years now. Yeah. What does it mean if the messages are in blue? Whose uh, messages are those? Whose phone is this taken from? I don't know whose phone's taken from. I mean, I just I turned the phone over and said to take stuff off. Can I have you look in the very bottom below the very bottom left corner? Is that your phone number? Yes. So you did get my text messages, and it said you did. Nice trick. <laughs> yes, Mr. Jones. Oh. Indeed. You didn't give this text message to me. You don't, you don't know where this came from. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years, and when informed, did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone. and then, Mr. Jones, you need to answer the question. No, I, did you know I, this happened? No, I didn't know this happened, but I mean, I told you, I gave him the phone over. And just and you said, question. you said in your deposition, you searched your phone. You said you pulled down the text, did the search function for Sandy Hook. That's what you said, Mr. Jones, correct? And I had several, several different phones with this number, but I did, yeah. Well, of course, I mean, that's why you got it. No, Mr. Jones, that's not why I have it. My lawyer sent it to you, but I'm hiding it. Okay. Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, please just answer questions. There's no question 
Mr. Bankston also only asked questions. Sure. Mr. Jones, in discovery, you were asked, do you have Sandy Hook text messages on your phone? And you said no, correct? You said that under oath, Mr. Jones, didn't you? I mean, if I was mistaken, I was mistaken, but you, you got the messages right there. You know what perjury is, right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. Yes, I do. I mean, I'm not a tech guy. I told you I gave, in my testimony, the phone to the lawyers before or whatever, and, and so you got my phone, but we didn't give it to you. No, Mr. Jones. One more time. And please remember, if you need to assert the Fifth Amendment, you can. I need to know that you can do that. Wow. That clip is certainly fascinating. Now, I'm not sure what the room smelt like, but if you were in that courtroom, I'd imagine it smelt very disgusting because Alex Jones was unquestionably shitting his pants right there. No doubt. Definitely. Because you can tell for the first time, Alex Jones was realizing that he was going to be held accountable for his actions. And one other thing that we learned because of these text messages was how much money Alex Jones was making spreading these lies. As NBC News reporter Ben Collins explains, these texts and emails are finally revealing financials behind InfoWars. Some days in 2018, InfoWars was making $800,000 per day. Quote, well after you're deplatforming, your numbers keep getting better, Sandy Hook parents lawyer says. If they keep that up, that's about $300 million a year. Alex Jones says $800,000 dollars a day was a really good week during CPAC where they were doing better business. So just stop for a moment, $800,000 to spread lies, to defame people. How long would it take for you to make that much money working at your current job? It would take decades, but he made that in one day. Astonishing. So these texts exist and they are proof that he committed perjury, but it gets worse for Jones because as Rolling Stone reports, the January 6th committee plans to subpoena those texts in order to determine if Jones had contact with people in Trump's team regarding the January 6th insurrection. So defamation, perjury, potentially engaging in uh, sedition with the insurrection, he is in a lot of trouble. Now, I want to share a clip of the judge scolding him where she points out that he lied on at least two, occasion, uh, two occasions. And when I say lied, committed perjury. Take a look. Mr. Jones, you may not say to this jury that you complied with discovery. That is not true. You may not say it again. You may not tell this jury that you are bankrupt. That is also not true. You may have filed for bankruptcy. I don't know that, but I've heard that. It doesn't put, that doesn't make a person or a company bankrupt. You're already under oath to tell the truth. You've already violated that oath twice today in just those two examples. It seems absurd to instruct you again that you must tell the truth while you testify yet here i am you must tell the truth while you testify this is not your show you need to slow down and not take what you see as opportunities to further the message you're wanting to further and instead only answer the specific 
an exact question you have been asked. He is so stupid. So stupid to perjure yourself while you are under oath. I mean, you're already being held accountable for defamation. So do you want to add perjury to that as well? It seems like he does. And to make matters worse, the day before he testified today, he attacked the judge on his show, saying she's demonically possessed and part of a cult. So really smart move there by Alex Jones to attack the judge. I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about fucking shooting yourself in the foot. Now, if you want further proof that he's incapable of acting like an adult, so he was talking with Neil Heslin. This is one of the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre who he defamed. Now, I don't know how this exchange began. I think that Heslin gave him a water bottle. Um, either way, they were talking and Heslin's attorney cut that conversation off and said no. So then there was a heated verbal exchange between the attorney and Alex Jones, where the attorney tells Alex Jones to be quiet, essentially, and Alex Jones then essentially tries to instigate a physical altercation. Watch. And then he's slow. No, I'm slow. Yeah, I'll be That's it. Stop talking anymore. You're not doing this. That's not even a thought. That's not the way this goes. Why do you can't feed them fake videos anymore? No, shut up. That's what you're trying to shut my mouth. You'll never succeed. I think I'm autistic too, buddy. See that? Unbelievable. That's in a courtroom. That is in a courtroom. So the attorney told him, shut your mouth. And he said, why don't you make me shut my mouth? In other words, why don't you come over here and engage physically with me to make me shut my mouth? Let, let's fight. So, I mean, let's see here. We're talking about defamation, perjury. Are we going to add contempt of court as well to that list? He just is incapable of acting like an adult. He is a man-child. And one other random clip that I wanted to play is him just trying to quickly shove something in his mouth. I'm not sure what this was when the judge wasn't looking. What was that? <laughs> I mean, he thinks that he was being inconspicuous there, but we saw it. There's cameras everywhere. I just, I don't understand him. Like, to get into the mind of Alex Jones would be horrifying because this individual is not just delusional. He is genuinely probably psychopathic. Now, for those of you who might feel a, a little bit of um, sadness for Alex Jones, uh, the two of you in my audience that perhaps feel, feel that way because, you know, he was crying there. He was upset. Um, let me remind you the pain that he caused to these families who he defamed. As the New York Times explained in an article published on November 15th of 2021, Mr. Jones for years spread bogus theories that the shooting that killed 20 first graders and six educators was part of a government-led plot to confiscate Americans' firearms and that the victims' families were actors in the scheme. People who believed those false claims accosted the families on the street and at events honoring their slain loved ones, abused them online, contacted them at their homes, and threatened their lives. The parents of Noah Posner, the young Sandy Hook victim, whose parents were the first to sue Mr. Jones, have moved nearly 10 times since the shooting and live in hiding. Quote, I would love to go to see my son's grave, and I don't get to do that Noah's mother, Veronique De La Rosa, said in an interview. 
interview after the cases were filed in 2018. Each time the family moved, conspiracists published their new home address with the speed of light, she said. So before you feel sorry for Alex Jones, before you believe these grifters who try to rehabilitate Alex Jones's career for some reason, that's what he did to these families. And Neil Hostlin, the man you saw Alex Jones talking to, explained how Alex Jones made his life a living hell, not to mention how insulting it was for him to claim that they were crisis actors, erasing their pain, erasing their son's existence, erasing the pain of losing their child. It's just genuinely monstrous stuff. So they're asking for $150 million, and I hope that they get every single penny. Because I don't think many people are evil enough to deserve to lose everything, but Alex Jones is without question one of those people who deserves to lose everything because of what he put these families through. But hey, at least now he admits that Sandy Hook was 100% real, so it's really nice for him to admit that after causing all of this pain and suffering of these families. So that is the... Uh, the trial with Alex Jones, and as you saw there, he's in a lot of trouble. His problems now potentially stem, you know, further, legally speaking, than just defamation. We're now talking about perjury, potential insurrection charges, and maybe contempt of court if he's incapable of handling himself in a grown-up manner while in the courtroom. So by now, I am certain that you've already heard the good news, but Kansas voters gave forced birthers a reality check when they voted overwhelmingly against amending their constitution to remove protections for abortion rights. And I want to share this video clip of voters reacting to them defeating this ballot initiative because this was really heartwarming. You love to see that. But at the same time, as heartwarming as that video is, um, I can't help but feel really infuriated about the fact that women are still having to do this in 2022. This was a settled issue, but Republicans just couldn't let it go, and they decided that they want to intervene in women's lives, and now women once again are forced to be in this position to where they have to fight th for their own bodily autonomy, and that's infuriating, but at the same time, I don't want to take away 
from this victory. This is really huge news. And as Emma Viglin puts it, Kansas should be proud today. Even before Roe was overturned, nearly half of all abortions performed in Kansas were for out-of-state individuals due to already draconian red state restrictions. Kansas cements itself as an oasis for border states like Missouri and Nebraska. And that is absolutely correct. Now, if you're one of the conservatives, if you're a forced birther who likes to hate watch this channel and you're perplexed as to why this ballot uh, initiative didn't go your way, stories like this like the one we're about to read now, explain why it didn't go your way. As the New York Times explains, Madison Underwood was lying on the ultrasound table nearly 19 weeks pregnant when the doctor came in to say to her that her abortion had been canceled. Nurses followed and started wiping away lukewarm sonogram gel from her exposed belly as the doctor leaned over her shoulder to speak to her fiance, Adam Queen. She recalled that she went quiet. Her body went still. What did they mean? They couldn't do the abortion. Just two weeks earlier, she and her fiance had learned her fetus had a condition that would not allow it to survive outside the womb. If she tried to carry to term, she could become critically ill or even die, her doctor had said. Now she was being told she couldn't have an abortion she didn't even want but needed. Quote, they're just going to let me die, she remembers wondering. Tennessee allows abortion if a woman's life is in danger, but doctors feared making those decisions too soon and facing prosecution. Across the country, the legal landscape was shifting so quickly, some abortion clinics turned patients away before the laws officially took effect or while legal battles played out in state courts. Now, we're talking about a young woman here who did not want to have an abortion. She was ecstatic about the prospect of one day becoming a mother. But because of unfortunate circumstances, this was the situation that she found herself in. The fetus was not viable. Its skull did not develop, and brain fluid was leaking into the umbilic sac, which would lead to an infection that would cause sepsis, which would threaten her life. So she decided to end the pregnancy. But she couldn't. Because at that time, the law was changing. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was announced. Now, this just goes to show you that these exceptions for the life of the mother, they're not actually adequate. Because these are usually ill-defined legal gray areas, and the doctors usually just choose to play it safe, right? Or in some instances, as we've seen in Texas, for example, they just... Uh, force the woman to provide them with an overwhelming amount of evidence in the event they are prosecuted. So, okay, the fetus is dead. Get an ultrasound. One more ultrasound. Okay, one more ultrasound just to be sure. This is what these exceptions for the life of the mother still put women through. They need full control over their bodies. So because she couldn't get an abortion in her state, what did she do? Well, the doctor recommended a clinic in Georgia, but there's some problems with that. For example, Quote, how would her fiance get the time off work to make the trip? How would they come up with the hotel and gas money? How long did she have until she herself became ill? A new, more terrifying question hit her. What if she felt a kick? As stress on the couple mounted, Mr. Queen quit his job to take care of Miss Underwood. His mother raised $5,250 to help with travel costs from the crowdfunding website GoFundMe. The cash would also help pay for the fetus's cremation. Now, the reason why feeling the fetus kick for the first time was so terrifying to her was because she did not want to to have an abortion. She wanted a healthy baby. So that would just add trauma knowing that, you know, this could have been something that she wanted. She could have been a mother, but it wasn't possible. So, you know, these were things that were going through her mind. Now, her parents, even though they were ultimately supportive, they disagreed with her and they actually thought that she should risk her life to have the baby just so that way she can meet the baby and hold it for a few minutes before it dies. Now, if that were my child, that's not what I would say. I, I would prioritize the health of my daughter 
But that's not what they said. They ultimately, you know, they agreed that she should be able to do whatever she wanted, but they didn't think she was making the right decision. They wanted her to risk her life. But still, even if they ultimately sided with their daughter, they were confronted with the forced birther at the abortion clinic when they ultimately arrived in Georgia. And this exchange that her forced birther mother had with other forced birthers who were presumably more extreme really speaks to how unreasonable these forced birthers are. The Georgia clinic staff warned the family about protesters outside. As they pulled into the parking lot, they drove by a man with signs showing dead fetuses. Are all of you okay with killing babies? He shouted into a megaphone. He approached Mrs. Underwood's parents' car and her mother rolled down the window. Quote, we're on the same side issue. Her mother said, we don't support abortion, but the doctor said our baby is going to die. Quote, you trust the doctors more than God? He replied, wow. So there is no getting through to them. Yes, we should trust the doctors more than God because doctors exist and God does not. He says that as if it's just common sense to assume that everything is going to be all right. Has he not heard of stillborn births? Has he not heard of miscarriages? Again, he was speaking to somebody who agreed with him. She stated she agreed with him as he was yelling at her daughter as she had to put on headphones to go into the abortion clinic to drown out the protests. But this individual, still, nothing would resonate with him. And the mother agreed. She thought that her daughter should risk her life to have a baby also she can meet the baby. But the daughter didn't want to do that because obviously that'd be more traumatic. Like she, she fell in love with the idea of becoming a mother. She didn't want to meet her baby, fall in love with it, and then say goodbye immediately. I, I mean, that's so cruel. That's trauma on top of trauma. So, I mean, you can see how this woman's mother is far more reasonable than that forced birther who was protesting outside of the clinic because even she acknowledged that the baby wasn't going to make it, but he just thought, no, 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 risk it. Doesn't matter. I don't care about the circumstances. You always have the baby, no matter what. We prioritize the fetus over the mother's health. It's just truly ridiculous. So it goes to show you how unreasonable they are. But the reason why the Kansas story is so important is because it reminds everyone that not everyone is as unreasonable as that individual. Most Americans, even in deep red states, are not that unreasonable. Most people acknowledge that women must control their own reproductive health. Getting an abortion isn't as simple as, oh, well, I changed my mind. I don't want the baby anymore. Sure, maybe that's the case sometimes, but a lot of times we're seeing these horror stories about the way that abortion outlaws are affecting women who have miscarriages or women who have fatal fetal uh, defects and the pregnancy poses a risk to their own life. Like, we see the way that this affects women in a multitude of ways. So to still support these bans after you see how disastrous they are speaks to how unreasonable you are. So if you are against women controlling their own bodies, congratulations, you're fringe. You're part of the small minority of the American population that wants to impose their minoritarian views on everyone else. But as you can see, voters are rejecting what you have to say. Yes, and you know, defense spending has always been discretionary. No VA spending is discretionary. What's mandatory are things like Social Security and Medicare. If, if you qualify for the entitlement, you just get it no matter what the cost. And our problem in this country is that more than 70% of our federal budget, of our federal spending, is all mandatory spending. It's on automatic pilot. It, it never, you just don't do proper oversight. You don't get in there and fix the programs going bankrupt is just an automatic pilot. What we ought to be doing is we ought to turn everything into discretionary spending 
So let's all evaluate it so that we, we can fix problems or fix programs that are broken that are going to be going bankrupt. You just heard Republican Senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, admit that he wants to rob you. He wants to take money out of programs that you already paid into. Are you okay with that? Because I certainly am not. Now, if you don't know any better, it's easy to be misled by these deceitful politicians. He claimed that, you know, doing this, switching Social Security from being automatically funded every single year to being part of our discretionary budget is just a way that we, politicians who you definitely trust, can make annual adjustments to in order to make sure that it is, you know, solvent. Except, what does he really want to do? He wants to cut Social Security. It's really, really clear. Now, cutting Social Security is like the first thing that he wants to do, but really what this would do is open the door to privatizing Social Security because this has been a long-term goal of Wall Street-backed politicians. Wall Street has been salivating over Social Security for decades now. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, so many politicians have tried to cut Social Security, but they have failed every single time because they know how popular this program is. So how do you allow Wall Street to get their hands on Social Security? How do you privatize it? Well, first, you have to convince people that it is going bankrupt and there must be a fix that is made immediately in order to save the program. Now, sure, there is a fix that you can make and we'll talk about that, but really what they wanna do is cut Social Security, fuck up the program, drive down satisfaction so that way voters are more open to the idea of potentially privatizing Social Security. That would be a disaster. Now, as Common Dreams explains, it's not the first time Johnson has attacked Social Security. Just last year, he called the program a Ponzi scheme and has previously supported legislation that would raise the retirement age for seniors and backed other GOP proposals to increase out-of-pocket spending by Medicare beneficiaries. So he already failed to convince anyone that he's serious about protecting Social Security when he called it a fucking Ponzi scheme. If you believe that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, you should be nowhere near that policy. And as Mark Pocan points out, you know the money you've paid all your life out of your paycheck for Social Security and Medicare? Senator Ron Johnson wants to steal your money and potentially cut benefits from both. That's a more extreme position than almost anyone in the U.S. Senate. Time for Mandela Barnes, which is his Democratic opponent. Now, the reason why that tweet is important is because it's correct. This is the most vocally extreme position. A lot of lawmakers, including Democrats, probably agree with Ron Johnson, but they're too afraid to say it because again, if you cut social security, something that most older voters rely on and all of us will rely on, then you lose them. So the way that they undermine Social Security, it's all covertly. They're incredibly disingenuous and you have to watch out for them. Now, part of the problem is that the media is complicit and they'll create these headlines about how Social Security is bound to go bankrupt in the year 2035, when in actuality, that's not the full picture. So as Vance Larson explains, until recently, money collected from paychecks covered all payments to retirees and even allowed for the growth of a large trust fund. These reserve funds were relatively modest from program creation in the 1930s through the mid-1980s. However, as the baby boomer generation entered the workforce, a large number of workers for every retiree allowed the fund to swell from $109 billion in 1988 to nearly $3 trillion today. The trust fund balance is now beginning to decrease as a result of 
of demographic changes and improved life expectancy. Baby boomers are now at or near retirement, and as such, there are fewer workers for every retiree. According to analysts at the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service, the trust fund will be depleted in approximately 12 years' time, assuming no policy changes are made. For those not familiar with the particulars of how Social Security is financed, it is easy to see how these claims and headlines may cause worry about whether they can rely on the program for retirement income. After 2034, based on current projections, Social Security will only be able to pay about 78% of benefits. This is, of course, problematic, but certainly not an indication that in 2034, payments will stop flowing entirely. For the last 30-plus years, most of the money withheld from paychecks went directly to current retirees, with the surplus contributing to the trust fund balance. Moving forward, money will still be coming in to cover most of the obligations, just not all of them. Congress should pass the act known as Social Security 2100 as sacred trust, which would change the earnings subject to taxation. Currently, only income below $147,000 is taxed, meaning an individual making $150,000 annually pays as much Social Security tax as Russell Wilson. This bill would subject income above $400,000 to the payroll tax. Taking this action would increase taxes on a small portion of wealthy Americans and ensure a better retirement outlook for millions of American seniors. So in other words, all that you have to do in order to keep Social Security fully funded for the foreseeable future is lift the cap on taxable income. That's it. But for whatever reason, this easy fix isn't being proposed by these politicians. Why? Because their donors told them that they want it privatized. So what do you do? You fuck it up. You make sure that it is less popular by making cuts to it, to making it seem less efficient, and you open the door to privatization. Yeah, but isn't it a little bit weird how we keep hearing about the same 12-year timeline with regard to Social Security? For example, look at the CNBC article. So they correctly point out that Social Security isn't bankrupt, but they say the new depletion date is 2035, a year later than projected last year. Hmm, very interesting how that works. So as of 2022, the new projected depletion date of Social Security is supposedly 2035. Now by depletion, I just mean that it won't be able to pay out 100% of benefits. But what's interesting is that in 2022, the depletion date was 2034. And in 2020, the depletion date was 2033. Now, I don't have a crystal ball or anything, but let me just make a guess here. And you could come back and check this next year. By 2033, the, uh, or excuse me, by 2023, by next year, the new depletion date will be 2036. And, and by 2024, the new deple depletion date will be 2037. You get the point that I'm making? It just continues to roll over. Right. So, again, that's not to say that there isn't fixes that need to be made. Yes, we need to lift the, the cap on taxable income. The problem is that all of this hysteria over Social Security going bankrupt is nothing more than a ploy to privatize it, to propose a fix that will ultimately break Social Security. So when senators like Ron Johnson tell you their plans, you should believe them. If you are a senior citizen and you rely on Social Security and Medicare and you continue to vote for these Republican politicians who make it known what they want to do with your retirement, you shouldn't support them. Blake Masters is another candidate. He just won his GOP primary who's talking about reforms to Social Security, i.e. cutting or privatizing Social Security. So pay attention because this is what they do. They know that they can't just directly privatize Social Security because it's too popular of a program. So if they drive down support and ultimately break this program, that's how you open the door 
to letting Wall Street get their disgusting little hands on this program. So we can't let that happen. And in order to stop this, we have to be vigilant and informed about what they're doing and the way that they try to sell you these types of schemes. It's by fear-mongering and it shouldn't work because it's not true. The Constitution of Florida has vested the veto power in the governor not an individual state attorneys. And so when you flagrantly violate your oath of office, when you make yourself above the law, uh, you have violated your duty, uh, you have neglected your duty, and you are displaying a lack of competence uh, to be able to reform those duties. And so today we are suspending state attorney Andrew Warren effective immediately. You just watched Florida's fascist Governor Ron DeSantis announce the suspension of state attorney Andrew Warren for refusing to enforce Florida's draconian and bigoted laws concerning abortion and gender-affirming care for trans youth. Now, as we talk about this particular story, it's going to become abundantly clear why Ron DeSantis is so threatened by this individual. Now, in response to this news, Warren released this statement via Twitter. Today's political stunt is an illegal overreach that continues a dangerous pattern by Ron DeSantis of using his office to further his own political ambition. It spits in the face of voters of Hillsborough County who have twice elected me to serve them, not Ron DeSantis. In our community, crime is low, our constitutional rights, including the right to privacy, are being upheld, and the people have the right to elect their own leaders, not have them dictated by an aspiring presidential candidate who has shown time and again he feels accountable to no one just because the governor violates your rights doesn't mean they don't exist now that is a really strong and powerful rebuke of ron DeSantis. now if you look at some of the past things that uh, andrew warren has said about ron DeSantis, it becomes clear why ron DeSantis wants this guy out of office because andrew warren is on to ron DeSantis's bullshit He's an aspiring presidential candidate who is trying to create these headlines by doing draconian things that he knows will get him praise with the GOP's far right base. So he released this statement a couple of months ago concerning the Don't Say Gay law. I'm disgusted to see the passage of the Don't Say Gay bill. At a time when our state needs to unite to solve important problems, this bill fosters prejudice and hatred, and our society already has enough of both. We deserve elected leaders who care more about public policies that help Floridians than partisan tricks to divide us. And that's exactly correct. Ron DeSantis has absolutely no substance whatsoever. The reason why he continues to distract with culture war issues, banning math books, citing CRT, is because he just wants to create headlines because all he's concerned about is his own career. He's not trying to address the housing and security issue in Texas. He's not trying to address environmental issues, income issues, worker rights. So all he does is punch down on the most vulnerable, try to consolidate as much power as possible to come off as this like strong leader because he knows that that's what the GOP base likes. And that's it. That's all that Ron DeSantis is. That's all fluff, no substance whatsoever. Now, more details on this story, courtesy of Daniel Villarreal of LGBTQ Nation, who explains Warren had recently signed an open letter shared by the state prosecutor coalition Fair and Just Prosecution, opposing the criminal prosecution of abortion seekers, aiders, and providers 
On July 1st, a state law went into effect forbidding Floridians from getting an abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, a period of time in which some women may not even realize that they are pregnant. He also joined a statement signed by prosecutors all over the country in June of 2021, saying to use our discretion and not promote the criminalization of gender-affirming health care for transgender people. Other states have enacted legislation banning gender-affirming care for minors, but Florida hasn't. DeSantis still cited this letter as proof that Warren thinks he has the authority to defy the Florida legislature. So Andrew Warren is simply doing his job by representing what his constituents in Hillsborough County want. But Ron DeSantis can't have it. Why? Because he's a thin-skinned authoritarian and anyone who criticizes him is going to be on his target. Now, the way that they teased this announcement, um, it really shows you who these people are. So his press secretary, Christine Pushaw, DeSantis's press secretary, to be clear, tweeted this out yesterday. Major announcement tomorrow morning from Governor Ron DeSantis. Prepare for the liberal media meltdown of the year. Everyone get some rest tonight, wink. So this is who these people are. They don't actually care about Floridians who face housing insecurity, food insecurity. They don't care about anything. They don't actually want to take on corporations. They don't actually want to defend freedom of speech as Ron DeSantis claims he wants to do. They're just all about the theatrics. That's what this administration is. But unfortunately, that's what plays really well in the GOP base to the point where, oh, look at how much this new announcement that's draconian and anti-democracy is going to trigger the libs, lol. I can't wait to see their reaction. This is his press secretary. I mean, these people are psychopaths. Now, as they do these terrible things, Ron DeSantis will maintain that he actually cares about LGBTQ plus people and hate is not welcome in the great state of Florida. And as he does things like this, um, he has the audacity to claim that this is all to support the most vulnerable people in the state of Florida, because if you don't enforce the laws, then you're not helping marginalized people. Take a look. When you uphold the rule of law, you are protecting the most vulnerable in our society. That's why we have a rule of law. And so I think today's uh, action is, is obviously warranted. I, I know that there'll potentially be some uh, uh, Florida Senate could potentially see this depending on how things are going out. Uh, but I just think that to take a position that you have veto power over the laws of this state is untenable, and, and I think it, it warrants the suspension and eventual removal of office. But yet, it's okay for Ron DeSantis to exercise veto power over the voters of Hillsborough County in order for him to assert total control. It's just ridiculous. Now, he's doing the same thing that other GOP lawmakers across the country are doing, trying to target the healthcare providers who offer women abortions, who offer youth gender-affirming care. So as Orlando Weekly explains, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says doctors who provide gender-affirming care for trans youth should be sued. So we are talking about healthcare that is medically necessary, that reduces rates of depression and suicidality. But he's saying any doctor who provides this type of healthcare, they should literally be sued and lose their license to practice. This is truly authoritarian. It's absolutely authoritarian. But this is what the GOP is doing. They target teachers. They target doctors. They target the people who serve our country the best. And then they portray themselves as heroes 
as they punch down on the most vulnerable people. Now, on what basis did he release this memo, that his uh, Department of Health released this memo basically prohibiting gender-affirming care for trans youth? Well, by twisting the science to misrepresent studies about transgender youth, as this Vice article talks about. So let's dive in a little bit here. When Dr. Ken Page published one of the first large-scale analyses of gender-affirming care on transgender children, in 2018, the paper was celebrated as a vital contribution and even made its way to the homepage of the R Science subreddit. Though the evidence was limited, the review suggested that hormone blockers and hormone replacement therapy could help alleviate gender dysphoria and make transgender youth feel more at home in their own bodies. Four years later, Peng was shocked to learn that his research was being used by Florida's Department of Health to justify denying gender-affirming care to all minors in the state. The department cited Peng's work in a memo issued in April after the passage of Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Law. The memo even recommends against social transition, which can include changes as simple as using new pronouns or wearing different clothing. Peng had no idea that Florida was misusing his work until Vice News reached out for comment. And he's not alone. Vice News spoke to 10 researchers who said they weren't aware of the memo and that Florida's Department of Health misstated their research. In fact, Vice News found that all 12 citations Florida presents against the use of gender-affirming care are either distorted or from a source with clear anti-trans bias. In crafting the document, Florida's health department reverse-engineered rationale for a policy completely counter to research-based medical best practices. Quote, no, this is not an appropriate use of our work, another researcher cited in Florida's memo told Vice News news via email on the condition of anonymity as they were not authorized by their institution to speak on the record. This does not mean denying transgender youth and certainly not gender affirming care. Yeah. So this is what these fascists have to do. They have to misrepresent studies in order to fit their disgusting draconian agenda because science is not on their side. The medical consensus is not on their side, so this is what they are forced to do to justify their draconian bans on gender-affirming care for trans youth. And what they often will do is play really, really loose with the facts, and they'll misrepresent what gender-affirming care means. For young uh, trans people, oftentimes this just means social transition, which means that, that you know, a child who, for example, is male-identified at birth may choose to start wearing dresses and, you know, uh, grow out their hair and whatnot in order to identify with the gender that they feel more comfortable with. But Ron DeSantis is saying, no, we're going to even stop that. We're going to control the way that your child expresses themselves. After all this time, we talk about parental rights. Really? So you're literally controlling the way that children in Florida express themselves and you're still this supposed warrior for free speech? And they pretend as if, oh, well, the reason why we're against gender-affirming uh, care for trans youth is because we don't think that you should mutilate the genitals of these children. And for those of you who think that children are getting sex reassignment surgery, you've been deluded by the right wing. It's difficult enough for trans adults to get gender-affirming care because we don't have a universal healthcare system in the United States. So even if a trans adult wants to seek out gender-affirming care, it is very cost-prohibitive. So to think that trans youth are getting it willy-nilly, where on Tuesday they come out as trans and by Thursday they're having sex reassignment surgery, that's not true. It's not even true for trans adults. So they lie, they manipulate people, and this is the way they enact their agenda. This is the way that they cultivate support for their lies. And another lie, actually, speaking of studies with regard to gender-affirming care, was just shot down. So you know how we've been hearing about how this rise in uh, transgender people and people identifying as trans is simply because it's a fad, it's, be it's becoming more popular? 
Well, a new study is shooting that down because associate professor of child psychiatry Jack Turbin released a paper for AAP Pediatrics that explains how a rise in young people identifying as trans is not due to it being a fad or beca or becoming more popular. It's because that's who they are. So again, they don't have anything on their side with regard to evidence or even arguments. They're just authoritarians who want to impose their will on everyone else, control what you do with your own body, how you raise your children, even as they try to portray themselves as the opposite of that. And this is just another step in, you know, Ron DeSantis trying to assert control, total control over the people of Florida. But I'm glad that Andrew Warren is not backing down. And I think that we should all uh, rally behind him because he seems like someone who Ron DeSantis is scared of, rightfully so, because he's on to Ron DeSantis's bullshit. He sees the way that Ron DeSantis tries to use these culture war issues to distract people from issues that actually affect Americans. And he's calling uh, Ron DeSantis out for it. And because Ron DeSantis is a thin-skinned authoritarian, he just can't let it stand, which is why he is now going after his political opponents to basically uh, solidify his uh, consolidation of power, which is uh, predictable, but, you know, it's still something that is completely unacceptable. I want to start by recognizing the overwhelming victory for the right to abortion in Kansas last night. Since the day the Supreme Court struck down the right to abortion and upended the lives of women across the country, the American people have been using their voices to speak out against Republicans' extreme bans. And now, for the first time since the Dobb decision, they've had the chance to speak with their votes. And they send a message loud and clear. People do not want their fundamental rights stripped away. They will not forget Republicans' cruelty in dragging us back half a century. And when abortion is at stake, they're not going to stay on the sidelines. Madam President, last night the people of Kansas sent a message as clear as any I've ever seen in politics. Now today, we're going to see if Republicans are finally getting that message or if they're going to continue to ignore the American people. Because Democrats are here today with legislation to protect doctors providing legal abortion care and make sure they can do their jobs, practice medicine, and save lives without the threat of legal action. I really can't believe we need this bill at all. We're talking about doctors who are following the law and simply want to provide care to their patients. It's not enough for Republicans that their cruel abortion bans have meant appointments that have been canceled, prescriptions that have been denied, doctors forced to wait until patients got sicker, wait until women are actually at, the de at death's door before they can provide life-saving care. Nope, they're going to go further than that. Now they're coming after doctors providing legal abortion care too. I really can't emphasize that enough. These doctors are following the law and still facing legal threats and harassment. That was Senator Patty Murray on Wednesday making the case for her legislation that would protect doctors from lawsuits. Now, the reason why this legislation is necessary is because in some states who have banned abortion, but they create exceptions for, you know, rape or to protect the life of the mother, 
These are really ill-defined legal gray areas, and doctors don't have the confidence that they won't be prosecuted if they do what is necessary to serve these women. And even for women who have had miscarriages, doctors are still apprehensive about doing the proper procedure on them because they don't want to be accused of doing an abortion on a live fetus. They don't want to be prosecuted. So a lot of times, if doctors choose to still serve these patients and don't turn them away altogether, they might have the woman produce them with an abundance of evidence. So in Texas, for example, one doctor made a woman get three different ultrasounds just to confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that the fetus was no longer alive. So this is what's happening. And you saw Patty Murray wonder aloud whether or not Republicans would support this bill because it really is the bare minimum. I mean, they claim that they're not this extreme, right? They support exceptions for rape or incest or when the life of the mother is in danger. So they're going to support this, right? So doctors can protect these women. Well, the answer is no. Senator Patty Murray tweets, Republicans just blocked my bill that would protect doctors from being investigated or thrown in jail for providing abortion care in states where it's legal. First, they attacked women. Now they're coming for doctors too. It's unbelievable. Now, specifically, Republican Senator of Indiana Mike Braun blocked her bill, as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reported on August 3rd. So they won't even protect doctors from doing what's legal. This is how extreme the modern GOP has become. And to be clear, it's not like they've just suddenly become more far right. They've always been this extreme. It's just that they've kind of hid the ball for years. And now they're letting their freak flag fly, as Kyle Kalinske would say. And they're showing to all Americans that this is who they are. Even in states where there are exceptions, they still don't want to protect these doctors. And look, even if, you know, you're a doctor and you perform these procedures and you get evidence to protect yourself. You consult with an attorney before you do this procedure. That might shield you from jail in the absence of these laws. But still, if an attorney's general wants to go after you, as some Republican attorneys general have gone after abortion doctors, if, you know, somebody wants to sue you for allegedly conducting an abortion on a live fetus, even if you're not going to go to jail, just paying for legal fees would destroy you. So these doctors, they need a law like this just to function, just to continue practicing medicine. But these, these Republicans are so extreme that they're saying, we don't even support that. So once again, Republicans are spitting in the faces of Americans who are mobilized on this issue. Now, we're not going to get into this particular story, but I'd recommend this article from Elena Vagianos of HuffPost, who details the dedication of these pro-choice advocates who have been knocking on doors in 103 degree heat to get the word out about this ballot initiative, which they successfully defeated in Kansas, as Patty Murray pointed out in her speech. So that's who the GOP is trying to fight against women who believe so strongly in their right to reproductive health care that they are willing to risk their own health and canvas in 103 degree weather. That is dedication right there. And the GOP just gave those women the middle finger. Now, what makes this victory for Kansas even more incredible is the fact that the GOP tried to use deceptive tactics to dupe people into supporting their forced birther agenda. So let's look at the actual ballot initiative. So as you can see, the left side is somewhat more clear if you want to read that. But let's read the right side. And uh, this is where the options are where you'll cast your vote. So this is the most important part, uh, arguably. So it says, because Kansas 
value both women and children. The Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elected state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including but not limited to laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. So if you were voting there, think about how confusing that is. Are you voting to protect women when it comes to, you know, these cases of rape and to save their mother? Or are you voting to stop the GOP from amending the Constitution to allow for an abortion ban? Like they purposefully wrote this in a way to mislead voters, but yet it still was defeated in a landslide. That goes to show you how powerful the pro-choice movement is. And, you know, even though there's some Republicans who are going to dig their heels in and they're not going to budge, some GOP senators are vocalizing a little bit of concern about how far their party has gone. And they're now kind of maybe implying we might have fucked ourselves by being so fucking extreme. As HuffPost reports, Republican senators were surprised by Tuesday's huge win for abortion rights in Kansas, of all places, even as they sought to downplay the electoral implications for their party ahead of November's midterm elections. It's definitely a wake-up call for us, Senator Lindsey Graham acknowledged on Wednesday. Kansas, which is a pretty red state, it's hard to find the words. I think people should look at it, added Senator Tom Tillis when asked for his reaction on the vote. Republicans argue that concerns over heightened inflation, particularly gas and food prices, coupled with poor approval ratings for President Joe Biden will dwarf the issue of abortion and push them to victory in both the U.S. House and the Senate. Quote, I think the biggest motivator for voters this time is going to be the economy, Senator Roy Blunt predicted on Wednesday. Look, and to Roy Blunt's point, it's part cope, but it's also part true. Some people might still choose to prioritize the economy and inflation as a more salient issue because abortion, perhaps, even if they feel strongly about it, it doesn't affect them as concretely as you know gas prices or inflation does so that may be true but still you have to acknowledge that there was no question that republicans would sweep come november and then the supreme court decided to overturn roe v wade and to make matters worse the gop all openly started to explain how hey our next step is a total ban on abortion and maybe we'll introduce that legislation if we take back power and now you have voters saying absolutely not more Americans than ever identify as pro-choice. Did you know that? So 55% of Americans identify as pro-choice. And even if they don't necessarily self-identify as pro-choice, they still support abortion rights. Perhaps, you know, you can shift on the spectrum where they draw the line, right? But for the most part, most people believe that abortion should be offered in this country to women. So the GOP is spitting in their faces and they're still acting overly confident when you just mobilized a whole new base of people who perhaps wouldn't have turned out. So, you know, this is a sign that they are realizing that they kind of fucked up. They're, they're, they're seeing this backfire in real time. And for Lindsey Graham to admit, oh, this is definitely a wake-up call for us. This is him like sending the bat signal to Republicans to shut the fuck up. You're killing our chances. Please stop. But I love it. Keep talking. Keep showing all of us how fucking extreme you are because voters will remember this in November.
You know, I find it absolutely fascinating that self-proclaimed Christian nationalists like Marjorie Taylor Greene go out of their way to prove how loyal they are to the American fascist movement. She'll even support bans on women's reproductive rights that could directly affect her one day, but still, there are some individuals within her movement that will never accept her. Why? Well, let's hear from Jonathan Shelley of Steadfast Baptist Church on why he, even though he agrees politically with Marjorie Taylor Greene, would never accept someone like her and would never vote for someone like her to be in a position of leadership. Why are we letting women teach us? Why are we letting women lead us? You know, the Republican Party seems doomed to me because while we're kicking on the Democrats, let's kick on the Republicans for a minute. Most of the recent candidates are women. And I'm thinking like, okay, Joe Biden bad. A woman politician replacing him, not better. You know, you kind of, like, people are thinking, like, I hope Joe Biden dies, and it's like, Kamala. You don't even know what the next Pharaoh's like. This Pharaoh could be worse. But I'm telling you something. I would never vote for a woman politician. I will not support a woman politician. Oh, Major Taylor Green or whatever. Marjorie Taylor Green. She's a conservative. She's on InfoWars. She's a woman. She's not going to fix this country. You know, it's like this, uh, I think the, in Arizona, it's like Carrie Lake or something like that is running for governor. And she's like, she's going to stand strong. And it's like, no, she's a woman. I don't care that she has a short haircut. You know, and it's sick how many men today let women just run our country because they're too cowardly to stand up to silly women. Men are too afraid to stand up to AOC. Men are too afraid to stand up to Hillary Clinton. Men are too afraid to stand up to nasty Pelosi. But I'm telling you, you know what? We need men to stand up and say, get back in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. Yeah. And you know what? Some pastors need to tell their wives to do that. Wow. Now, when the camera panned and showed the audience chuckling at his stupidity there, it really disturbed me to see little boys in that crowd because this is being embedded in their heads at such a young age that I worry that they're going to grow up and espouse these same horrific draconian antiquated views but I hope that you know when they are old enough they go to college they hear from more open-minded people they do research and realize that all of these lies all of this dumb fuckery that's being fed to them that was fed to them at a young age when they're older was all wrong. I mean, certainly I left the evangelical Christian cult when I was introduced to different opinions, so I hope that the same will be true for them. And, you know, one thing that also bothered me was the women in the audience that just nodded along. I mean, stand up for yourselves. He's telling you that you are meaningless. Your lives aren't as valuable as the lives of men. Your voice isn't as valuable as the lives of men. And your life, your mere existence is simply to serve men. Get in the kitchen and make us a sandwich. That's what he literally said. And they're just sitting there nodding along. How can you support someone who thinks that you are inferior to them? I don't get how every woman wouldn't just get up and leave. But I mean, this shows the power of brainwashing. It's just truly horrific. Now, you saw what he said about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Carrie Lake. But Marjorie would say, oh, well, this individual is just, he's fringe. And the MAGA movement, the Christian nationalist movement doesn't agree with him. And that may be true for now. The problem is that if you follow Marjorie Taylor Greene's own political ideology to its logical conclusion, that's the trajectory that they're headed in.
that's the inevitable conclusion. She supports a movement that will ultimately lead to her demise. You can't be a leader in the Christian nationalist movement, Marjorie Greene, because the Bible says that women should be subservient to men. They are subordinate to men, and therefore you're not as valuable. Why would you support this? Why would you support this type of movement that thinks that you're a second-class citizen? I mean, we don't know why that's the case, but Marjorie Taylor Greene quite literally supports laws that make women second-class citizens, such as abortion bans. And it's just, it's crazy how people, marginalized people, gay conservatives, support this movement that doesn't like them. Now, Jonathan Shelley makes it seem as if women have already reached parity with men in government, but that's just not true. In the U.S. Senate, women hold just 24 seats, 16 Democrats, 8 Republicans out of 100 seats. And in the House of Representatives, they hold just 122 seats, 90 Democrats, 32 Republicans, meaning that they only comprise 28% of the House of Representatives. And throughout our nation's history, there's been a total of 42 female senators and 335 female House members. So, it is not the case that women are dominating politics. They haven't even reached parity. I mean, just because you have some female Republicans emerge as national leaders doesn't necessarily mean that women are dominating men and, dr and drowning out men. It just means that some women have higher visibility than uh, Republicans. You know, perhaps Marjorie Taylor Greene has more uh, of a platform, has more visibility because she's so vicious in representing Jonathan Shelley's fascist movement. But, you know, even if it were the case that Congress was made up of 100% of women, I don't care. What I care about ultimately is the substance, right? I think that parity is important and I would like to see the demographics in society reflected in government. But political scientists distinguish between two types of representation. There's descriptive representation and there is substantive representation. So descriptive representation just means that if there are 50% of women in society, there should be 50% of women in governing bodies. But substantive representation means that you have a proportional amount of people representing a particular group that actually advocates for them. So when it comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, sure, she is descriptive representation for women, but she is not substantive representation for women because she doesn't actually advocate for most women. She actually advocates against policies that would bolster the freedom of women in this country. So that's a really important distinction to make. But Jonathan Shelley, he cares more about symbolic descriptive representation than the substance. Even if he agrees with Marjorie Taylor Greene on 100% of the issues, well, he can't support her simply because of her identity. She's a woman. I mean, if you thought that identity politics was bad on the left, is this not like the ultimate form of identity politics gone wrong? Now, look, what he said there may shock some of you, but if you follow Jonathan Shelley, then this is not surprising. This is an individual who is a monster, and we've talked about him before, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with his politics, let's get you caught up. So as Alex Bollinger of LGBTQ Nation writes, the Southern Poverty Law Center considers the Steadfast Baptist Church an anti-LGBTQ hate group. It's part of the New Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement, which includes Seven Anderson's Faithful Word Baptist Church. Shelley has declared that gay men are all pedophiles and once celebrated the death of a 75-year-old gay man. Jim Fahey, a member of the Fort Lauderdale 
gay men's chorus was killed when a driver accidentally drove into the Wilton Manor's Pride Parade. Quote, and you know, it's great when trucks accidentally go through those, you know, parades, Pastor Shelley said about the tragedy. I think only one person died, so hopefully we can hope for more in the future. Quote, you say, well, that's mean. Yeah, but the Bible says that they're worthy of death. He continued. They say, are you sad when F slurs die? No, I think it's great. I hope they all die. I would love if every F slur would die right now. And you say, well, I don't think that's what you really mean. That's exactly what I mean. I really mean it. So that's who Jonathan Shelley of Steadfast Baptist Church is. Yeah, no hate quite like Christian love, right folks? Now I'm going to repeat this again because I think it's important. Um, even if you view this individual as an outlier, currently that is true for now. The problem is that if you follow Marjorie Greene and Carrie Lake's movement to its logical conclusion, that right there is the trajectory. I think that it's redundant to say that, but I think it's worth emphasizing that point. If you are in a community that is currently marginalized, vulnerable, lacks political representation, and you support these Christo-fascists, if you pledge to be part of the Christian nationalist movement, that's what you ultimately have to look forward to if your worldview comes to fruition, if everything you say you want to be passed into law actually gets passed. That's what a Christian theocracy would entail. So if you are a gay man like Dave Rubin, if you are a female like Marjorie Taylor Greene, it is in your best interest. It would behoove you to leave now while you still can. Because even if currently you'd like to see them succeed to own the libs, you're also owning yourself. So don't be stupid. Leave this movement and condemn them before it's too late. John Fetterman has been hammering his opponent, Dr. Oz, for being a carpet-bagging multi-millionaire elitist who's out of touch with working-class Pennsylvanians. And in an appearance on Laura Ingram's program on Fox News, Dr. Oz hit back with a very powerful, no you. Take a look at what he has to say, because everything that he's saying about Fetterman is nothing but projection. Who is this guy, John Fetterman? Because it, this, this story keeps getting more fanciful by the day. Well, Fetterman's a fraud. I'm actually in Pittsburgh now, which is close to where he's currently living, although he's not from here originally, and they know it. And they tell me all the time how much they dislike him. He was supported by his parents until he was elected as lieutenant governor four years ago. He lived on handouts without paying his taxes correctly, by the way. And yet he's raising taxes right now, advocating for that on the working class after pushing for reckless spending programs and you know creating all this inflation. And he's a rubber stamp for Joe Biden. And here's the thing. He's the most radical Democratic candidate in a contested election this cycle. I'll say it again. The most radical in a contested election, yet no one knows it. And by the way, if you want to go to DrOz.com and help me get the word out, it will be helpful because he stored up so much money that he's been telling that tale that you just showed. I, on the other hand, I'm the, I'm the son of an immigrant. I believe in the American dream because I lived it myself. I respect the needs of workers hurt by regulations and overreaching government. And the reality is John Fetterman believes in big government and bloated bureaucracies. That's his life experience because he's never had to actually work to make his own money because it was given to him. I believe in the people of Pennsylvania. And if you believe in the people and individualism and what you do if you work for yourself, which is what the American dream was about, that's the deal. You work hard, you succeed, you do the right thing. You achieve things that unimaginable anywhere else on the planet. If you believe that, come to DrOz.com and share your thoughts, because that's the story we're going to tell as we win in November. Well, Dr. Oz, you know, they've been spinning this tale, as I said, 
And it's always, you know, the kind of the stunts and the costume. So he has the costume. He kind of looks like un Uncle Fester hits the gym. You know, that's kind of what he looks like. <laughs> well, you know, God bless him. I'm glad he's well. He's doing better and so forth. But they, you know, they put Snooky out there to say you don't live in Pennsylvania. But are, are you living in the house that you and your wife were married in? I think I read that somewhere. Is, is, is that the case? It is the case. 37 years ago, best decision I ever made. I was in medical school in Philadelphia at Penn. I also went to Wharton Business School because I was studying healthcare finance. Might come in handy when I'm serving in the Senate. I grew up just south of Philadelphia, had a couple children in Pennsylvania. I mean, these are fairy tales. But even the Inquirer, who's not been a big ally of mine, is saying, enough, Fetterman. Start talking about real issues. Stop hiding in your house. The Joe Biden program is not the right thing for democracy. Come out and talk about real issues. But frankly, Laura, he never has. He didn't talk about real issues in his own primary. He didn't leave his house that much to campaign. People thought he was lazy. I don't know what it is, but he doesn't like to go out and meet people and actually answer questions. The desperation there was palpable. That was painful to watch. And even commenters were pointing out how this isn't necessarily the best look, but we'll get to what they have to say. I don't know if you noticed it, but did you catch the Chiron? Because it read, tattoos and hoodies can't mask Fetterman's elitism. Glenn Greenwald moments away. So I love that. So they're trying to spin it to where it's not actually Dr. Oz, the multi-multi-millionaire who has seven different mansions, who's the elitist. It's John Fetterman. Is there a single person who's going to buy this, including Republican voters in Pennsylvania? Because I think that it's so demonstrably untrue that it makes Dr. Oz look like even more of a phony than he already is. I mean, there are videos of him giving us tours through his mansion in New Jersey where he's playing basketball in his indoor basketball court. I mean, I don't even have an outdoor basketball court, let alone an indoor one. So, I mean, you have seven different mansions and you're saying that, oh, your opponent is the elitist? I mean, you're just like, this is the political equivalent of the third grade comeback i'm rubber and your glue whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you that's basically what dr oz is doing here is it not he also says uh fetterman's a fraud okay well i have a lot to say in response to that but my first question to dr oz is this you my father taught me how to handle my first gun i taught my son oliver how to do the same I've been shooting and hunting my whole life. So when people say I won't support guns, they're dead wrong. Boom! Very authentic. Look, if you are actually a genuine person, you don't have to make videos like that where you brazenly pander to voters. It's just, it's embarrassing. And to call John Fetterman a fraud when there are stories like this out there. For example, the Daily Beast reports Dr. Oz's dark history of promoting companies he was quietly invested in. The celebrity doctor turned Senate candidate has long used his platform to hawk supplements, but he had a more personal interest in some products. Yeah, so basically everything that he's saying about Fetterman is true about him, and it's what Fetterman has also said, but he's spinning it. No, you, I'm not the elitist, you are. I'm not the one who's out of touch, you are. In fact, people tell me that they don't like you. Really? Who? Who? Who's saying that? It's such a weird thing. Like, anyone can say that. What you would ideally do if you wanted to showcase how unpopular John Fetterman was, was you'd get these folks to get on camera and vocalize their distrust with Fetterman. I'm sure that there's enough people in Pennsylvania who dislike John Fetterman, so if you actually wanted to demonstrate how unpopular he is, you can do that visually, but instead you're just claiming, oh, well, people tell me all the time they don't like him. 
okay, that means nothing. That's not being reflected in the polls right now, so what's your point? He also said uh, he was supported by his parents until he was elected uh, lieutenant governor four years ago. He lived on handouts without paying his taxes, by the way. Okay, that makes you seem even more out of touch because there are a lot of people who have to live with their parents because the economy, have you taken a look around? I get that multimillionaires can't really grasp what normal Americans go through, but it is really, really difficult to afford rent. So if you have a family member or a parent who owns a home and living with them is the way that you can survive, that's what unfortunately a lot of people have to do. A lot of millennials, a lot of Zoomers have to do this. So for you to say, oh, well, he lived, lived with his parents. He never had a real job. I mean, that just makes you look even more out of touch. So even in his critique, where he is trying to portray John Fetterman as being out of touch, he ends up inadvertently making himself look even that much more out of touch. Now, we've talked enough about this. We don't really have to get through uh, or debunk all of his arguments because I think that they're kind of on their face absurd. But the reason why I say that is because even Fox News viewers, they see through Dr. Oz's phoniness. Now, and I don't want to give you like this misrepresentation of the comment section because most of them were supportive for the most part of Dr. Oz. But there were a lot of comments that stood out to me because of the uh, inherent skepticism with their support for him. So let's get to some of these here. This guy better get on the ball and actually develop a real message. There's a reason why he's trailing in the polls. He's been soft peddling since the primaries and doesn't have any on point message like DeSantis or Yunkin. He's too big to be so desperate. He needs to learn to come up on his own. He looks crazy as hell. Lord have mercy, I hope I'm wrong about Oz. Pennsylvania needs him to be real. Dr. Oz will not win in Pennsylvania. There is no way. Remember, folks, Dr. Oz does not support the Second Amendment. I don't trust Oz, but I also didn't trust Trump back in 2015. I think Oz will be better than we think. Not perfect, but 100 times better than Fetterman. Oz answers to his home country, not us. A little bit of xenophobia there. Another one, uh, I hope Dr. Oz is all he seems to be. If he is, we need someone like him. Can you say rhino? This man is a joke. I'm not sure about Oz. In other words, we like the things that he's saying. We just don't necessarily believe that he's going to deliver on the things that he's saying. We don't necessarily believe that he's authentic. And these are presumably Republican voters. I don't know if they're from Pennsylvania, but if Fox News's audience can see through you, if they think you're a little bit too wishy-washy, that's a problem. Again, I've said this once, I'll say it again. Dr. Oz is the Republican equivalent of Hillary Clinton, where he's so inauthentic, so out of touch that every single time he tries to appear more relatable, it ends up making him look even more out of touch because he is incapable of being personable when you're so out of touch. I mean, when you are a hundred millionaire, your life is so radically different than the average human being that you can't possibly relate to them. It's just, it's impossible because you're like, you're a different person at that point. And your experience is so different that there's no way you can even have a conversation with normal people, which is why, you know, these elites usually exist within their bubbles because they don't know how to talk to the peasants. They just try to tell them what they think they want to hear, recite the same talking points that they've been hearing, but it doesn't land, especially if you're not good at selling the product that you're trying to shove down their throats. One more article that I want to cite here real quick. We're not going to get into this here, but this is from Puck. Oz's great escape. Republican Party insiders are increasingly frustrated with what they perceive as a certain laissez-faire attitude from the poorly polling GOP Senate candidate who has spent nearly as much time on vacation as on the campaign trail. So what was it that Dr. Oz was saying? 
about uh, John Fetterman, how he doesn't want to get out there, he doesn't want to campaign and talk to people, you've been on vacation as much as you've been campaigning. And again, shows how out of touch you are because how many Americans can, can say that they take vacations? And if they take vacations, it's usually staycations. They don't have the money to travel. They don't have the means to have fun on their vacations. They just take a break. And also, I forgot about this, uh, but I've got to bring it up. The Uncle Fester reference. I mean, this is their attempt at firing back. It's just, it's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. This is, you know, one of those hello fellow kids moments and Fox News, Laura Ingram, she's trying to help him. Like she's giving him these softballs. I heard that you've actually lived in Pennsylvania for a very long time. Is this true? Like, you can just, like, imagine the setup before this interview. Okay, so it seems like one of the biggest critiques is that you're a carpetbagger. So let me ask you this question about, you know, um, where you've lived and then, you know, think about what you want to say with regard to that answer. Prove to people that you're a real Pennsylvanian. Like, it's such a softball, like, overly propagandistic interview that it just, it speaks to everything wrong with mainstream media and everything wrong with these inauthentic Republicans who are elites that just want power because they're bored and once you buy a yacht, a mansion, and every single car, then what? Well, you can't just retire happily with all of your hundreds of millions of dollars. You have to try to assume power because what else is there to, you know, accumulate? If you've got all the money that you could possibly get, then you seek out power. And that's what we're seeing with Dr. Oz. So, look, even though currently Fetterman has increased his lead, it's not a foregone conclusion. If you live in Pennsylvania, definitely uh, do what you can to support John Fetterman and get out the vote. Because even if Dr. Oz is a terrible candidate, we don't necessarily know if momentum will shift back in the Republican Party's favor. So, we'll have to wait and see. Either way, uh, Dr. Oz is so desperate that it comes off as just pathetic. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.